Hello, can you hear me? Is that coming through fairly clearly? I hope so. Hello. Let me know when the audio is coming through, everyone, and uh, we shall kick off. There's usually a bit of a delay, as ever. Um, also, at the last minute, corrected the uh, cor corrected the name of the the episode. I got the episode number wrong. Just shows how um, on it I am in terms of production. Hello, good evening. Hello, everyone. Right, so we are. This is going to be. Uh, I think it should hopefully be. Well. I've not looked through. Well, I have looked through it in in some reasonable detail, but I've I've um, I've basically we're going to be going through the Carmen interim the Carmen derailment interim report. That's today's episode. Um, there's a little bit of stuff to start with, um, but we're going to get stuck in fairly quickly. It's going to be a uh, with this. It's going to be a fairly sober episode, I think. But also, we've got to be we've got to think about the the. You know, we've we've got to learn from it, and in that learning, there there there's not just engineering things we need to learn. There are operational things we need to learn. Um, so hopefully, you know, it's going to be an episode where we'll still we'll still pick things out, some things, lots of things for us to learn from. And as ever with these things, they have broader application. You know, even outside of the railways, there's lots of process things that we can learn from. So I think it should be a good it should be a good episode for us learning things, and um, and looking forwards a bit. But also, yeah, it's um, it, it's it's not perhaps going to be the most uh, the most upbeat of our episodes. But you know, I, I think it's important. I, I, you can't, as an engineer, I can't. I, I, everything we learn from, everything we do, everything we. In fact, I tell you what, let's um, let's bring this, let's do this. Hello, everyone. I'm here. Um, everything we do as engineers uh, is on the back of previous learning, and a lot of that learning involves tragedy. And and we can't shy away from that. We have to understand it and, and, and ensure we move forward. Obviously, it's more sensitive with the recent incident. But, um, you know, we have... That's why you know, we can't just put our heads in the sand. We have to look at the, the, the mistakes that were made and learn from them and ideally learn from them quickly. So we're going to go through some of those things. I'm also going to put a bit of context. Um, I'm going to start with a bit of... I'm going to get on a soapbox at the start and talk about something which is... Um, given kind of some of the discussions I have with people within... The driver community is something that's a bit of a taboo subject, actually, uh, and uh, I'm hoping maybe that this start, the first, maybe the first third of this will provide some ammunition for people within the drive, maybe the unions or certainly uh, kind of the drivers community and, and maybe staff community um, to maybe have a little bit of a think about some of the things that they're expected to do uh, day to day. So, um Absolutely. To, uh, people pointing out that uh, anyone who uh, those who fail to learn from mistakes are doomed to repeat them. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm afraid we do far too often repeat mistakes, not just in this industry, but in engineering more broadly. So let's get started, shall we? Um, before we crack on, uh, the first thing is uh, that I wanted to, in fact, I was asked to put up the um, the COVID stats. So so I've done that. They're, they're updated every Wednesday, conveniently enough. So these are fresh from this morning. Uh, straight off the DFT website, um, and yeah, so tell you what, let me get my uh, let me get my whacker out so I can scribble on things. It always makes life a bit easier, doesn't it? So, uh, what can I see here? Well, uh, this is the whole. So this is the whole trend from the start. So just as a reminder for anyone who hasn't maybe seen this these trends, because it's been a while since I've put these up, I think. Um, this uh, down here, actually, rather I should say, kind of here. This whole trend, these trends aren't absolute figures. These are relative to um, the equivalent pre-COVID day or, or week. 
So these are in relation to the, the, this baseline. And if COVID hadn't happened, you'd see all these trends kind of doing this, right? They'd be slowly kind of climbing up. And it might be a bit more sinusoidal, you know, it might be a bit more like kind of daily like that, a bit like you see below. But actually, you'd see a general climb accounting for the, the, the kind of the, the growth. It wouldn't, probably wouldn't be quite that high. It might be about here. I think growth is like pre-pandemic growth is around about between 5 and 10%, something like that anyway. Um, you'd see that trend. But actually... Um, what we saw was, you know, lockdowns being announced and, and rail dropping away very, very dramatically, um, as as did road, as, as did everything, because we were all told to stay indoors, right? So, um, so that, so that, yeah, so all, all that, so you can see, so I've, I've talked through this already, and we did an episode talking about this, so I'm not going to dwell on that. What I'm going to look at is, is kind of what's happened since the episode, which was kind of, when, when was it? That was kind of around about here, wasn't it? That we did, that we had the episode, and we were kind of in the deep, in the depths of, of a kind of a long lockdown. Um, actually, I'll probably, oh, excuse me, I'll probably get my um, miniaturized face up in the top corner. Actually, while I'm talking about these, so, um, so if so, so the the important thing to look at is what's happening at the moment, which is um, the climb. Now, this this dotted, so if I this this dotted fig bit here is um, a bit dubious. I'm not quite sure where that's come from. I don't know whether it's uh, in relation to. I, I, I don't quite know that, that the dotted nut lines, by the way, are predictions. That's predicted, kind of projected figures, not the actual figures. The solid lines are the actual figures, and you can see I generally include the project, projected figures, and you can see they're they're all over the place. So, so not to worry too much about that. The key thing is to look at the solid line. You can see that we've got that growth. We're already now at the highest point. Essentially, we're we're, we're basically at the level we were at. Um, uh, last time we reached a peak, which was before the regional lockdown started hitting, which was back in September, which was around about forty-five percent. That's around about the figure we've got, and we're we're almost we're, we're almost back to forty-five percent again now. Um, what's key, and I, I think I talked about this, um, or maybe I haven't actually talked about this much. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's go to the next slide. So this is this is the total trend. So it gives you an idea of the overview. Um, as ever, at me in. Uh, if you've got any queries or questions on any of this stuff, let's have a look at the next one. This is slightly more zoomed in, so a bit more um, clarity. This is the annual, so I, I've broken this down. So I've got the 2020 number, and then this is this is 2021. And so you can see the climb. The key thing is how quickly that climb continues, and where it ends up, like where the sorry, if you like, um, sort of if we've got if we've got like some form of asymptote, uh, an asymptote is a line never quite reached. Uh, if you've got the projected increase going up, where is it going to? Where's that? That where's that asymptote going to be? Is it going to steady out, and then maybe is there going to be a bit of time, and then is it going to steadily climb, or is it going to? Is it going to be much lower? Is it going to? Is it going to stabilize much lower and stay like that forever? You know, that's the doom mongers are, are trying to suggest that. Or are we going to sort of see a pretty rapid climb, and then are we going to see a bit of this, and then is it going to do that? We don't really know. But what I think is going to happen is that we are going to have a pretty good idea fairly quickly um i think fairly quickly we are going to see uh i think over the next i think certainly by june we're going to have a pretty good idea of um of the shape of things i think by that point we'll see we'll have seen bus services continue to climb i think bus services will reach i think they'll be over 80 percent by kind of june i just i see the climb being quite rapid quite sharp um, given that everyone's been sort of there's this increasing pressure, if you like, it's almost like blowing up a balloon. Uh, you know, we're you know, everyone's get that continued pressure of wanting to get out and about. Um, 
I think we're going to see it climb. The other thing to note, of course, is is essentially the inversely direct, kind of the inversely proportional relationship between uh, driving and cycling. Um, as as driving generally drops, you'll see cycling uh, generally climb. Um, I mean, it is correlative rather than causative, but I dare say the relationship is not quite that. You know, it's it's <laughs> they are not unrelated from each other. Anyway, so. Uh, yeah, so cycling is depressingly. This is back. It's it's back to kind of stabilizing towards exactly where it was before the pandemic, uh, which is kind of not not great. It would have been really nice if it had kind of hovered around kind of up here, but alas, not. Um, anyway, so uh, there's the discussion. Uh, yeah, Gareth Williams asked if there's any reason why bus travel is high, bus travel is higher than rail. Yeah, we've talked about this in the previous uh, in, the, in the actual big. I'd recommend going and listen to the coronavirus episode where we, we kind of rail coronavirus versus railways um i think the suggestion is partly to do with the fact that it, it, it yes it serves it, it can serve um lower income deciles so uh, which means that people who are key workers might well have been using the bus a bit more so that's one possible kind of explanation uh, number two is that because of the the packet size nature of buses you know a, a bus is like lots of individual packets right whereas a train uh, you know uh, has it's it's all one thing so it comes less uh, basically you can distribute your you can distribute your social distancing better in individual buses than you can in 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 kind of uh, less frequent trains I, I, to an extent that might account for it I, I, yeah there's there's probably some you know it's, it's fairly unscientific but there, those, those are suggestions and the extent to which those um uh influence it um kind of remain to be seen so let me um oh yeah there is one last trend which i'm going to show you all which is um is this which is um i think it's interesting to look at this is this is a, a graph that lots of people are probably familiar with uh because for all sorts of reasons not least uh let me get my uh let me get my ink color to light uh, not least because everyone goes oh look look at look at this it's privatization oh it's privatization resulted in this sudden climb in in ridership uh when actually no the the the, the climb in ridership started uh in the early 80s um that continued and then it's only thatcher you know it's only a, a kind of a massive early 90s uh, recession that resulted in that dropping down again um after you know quite a long period of thatcherism uh it was it was never going to be uh we were never there was never going to be quite the recovery so when we had the, the the crash in in 2008 uh there's a bit of a dip but because we'd had several years of people generally getting better off uh people were able to recover so we didn't see that drop in in ridership um, but the scary thing here, I think the important thing to note here, if I get rid of all my scribbles, um, is it's interesting to look at where the uh, this is now right. This is now ridership from the uh, it's kind of the latest annual figure from the from the previous year, um, twenty nineteen twenty, and that figure is that right? Is it twenty nineteen twenty or twenty 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 one? Uh, I can't quite remember where the cutoff, the, the the data set cutoff is actually. Whether it's calendar or financial, I, I need to. I need to check. It's generally done quarterly and then and then aggregated. Anyway, the point is, um, this is the official annual stat. It's still to, it's still provisional. It's not been fully finalised yet. But if you want to look at where that line sits, we officially have. You know, ridership was lower in the in the last in the last data collected year than it ever has been in recorded. You know, in kind of certainly in the last uh, 75 years, basically. So the last sort of three quarters of a century. So so to the modern railway has never seen ridership that low. I think it's pretty staggering. Um, 
but ridership is climbing quickly. Let's see what happens. I think it's important. To, there's a lot of doom and gloom. Go and listen to the coronavirus episode where I point out that everyone seems to have forgotten this thing called climate change where we need to increase, you know, bang the drum. We need to be doubling rails capacity by the middle of, the, of this century. And, um, you know, doom and gloom and uh, recruitment freezes within network rail and um, uh, and cuts and changes to staffing in network rail are a completely ridiculous idea. Um, don't do those things. Anyway, uh, so let's uh, let's let's move on. Let's let's move on. I'm going to get rid of my face and I'm going to bring us on to the next image, which is which I think is quite a poignant image. I, I always find images of it's 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 difficult to be um, some of the most poignant images related to to rail disasters are often of the the people working on that. On, on the incident and the look on their faces and the kind of the the appalling nature of the scenes they're being presented with the kind of the the the, 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 the carnage the, the 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 things that are you know the upsetting scenes having to rescue you know in, the injuries and so on um and I, and I actually thought this image there was an image of a of a police officer looking looking bereft but I actually I thought this image is particularly poignant and indicative of kind of the the nature of the northeast of Scotland an area that you know I, I grew up I grew up in Inverurie uh, the northeast is some someone I know very well I know this line well traveled on it a lot um and and the idea that the coast guard was who were kind of the a lot of the responders were actually coast guard staff and um yeah it's it's I just think this image of the kind of the Coast Guard vehicles parked up on the railway was felt like a poignant one. We're going to talk about Carmen, and uh, without further ado, I uh, all I can say is um, that this this hopefully will be an insightful episode. There'll be lots to I, I want this to be a discursive episode, so so do chat. I, I, I don't want it to be you know don't want lots of silence in the chat. I want you know having lots of good discussion. Um, I'm going to open with um, a bit of uh, a bit of background on a particular subject that I think is very important as part of this, but it's by no means the whole picture. It's just one small facet of it. Um, but without further ado, uh, let, let's crack on. Let's uh, let's kick off tonight's episode. City 225 fades out I'm going to bring up it's a sober a sober episode but I think it's also you know it's an episode for learning and looking forward so I don't want it to be entirely sober um here is a picture of um what do they actually call it the Inter 7 City but it's, it's it's a short form HST um here is the short form HST uh, there it is and this this is a vehicle we're going to talk about a bit um you know it's uh I think it's Actually, let's bring my let's bring my miniaturized face up in the corner. Hello, everyone. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a there's well there's there's I'm going to have some things to say about this vehicle, uh, but this is the type this is the vehicle that was involved in the in the Carmen derailment. Um, uh, before I talk any more about anything, uh, oh, also incidentally, you can see the vehicle it replaced in the background, which is a which is a this thing, which is a class one seventy turbo star. Um, you can trace its lineage back to the old turbos uh you know this actually you can trace its lineage back to um back to some of the old multiple unit stock in you know it's it's got it's got british rail kind of it does have british rail heritage very much um so 
before we press on any further, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to put a content warning up, actually, because this this is, we are going to talk about some things. Um, we are going to be talking about some pretty, uh, some of the descriptions, particularly in the report, might be upsetting for some people. There are going to be pictures of um, of derailments, of, of, of damaged uh, rail vehicles, and that might be really upsetting for people. So, um uh, yes, it's a content warning for for people that this that that, that might find that upsetting. I mean, I'm not yeah, just just as a bit of a pre warning. I, I think you might have expected it already, but just a bit of a pre warning. So this incident, Carmen, this happened. Uh, you, we, we kind of go back to Carmen, which is in the northeast of Scotland. Um, it uh, go back to and, and the incident in question happened in the morning. It happened at uh, just about twenty to ten in the morning on Wednesday, the twelfth of August, twenty twenty, and. This is the incident. We've. Uh, this is an image I that uh, the, the, the Evening Express took, and it was the first image that I saw on the day that um, that actually showed what had happened. It was the first image I saw that was in the public domain that showed that allowed me to see what was going on. And by which I mean, um, uh, by which I mean, you can see over here what has happened, and. and you can see that there is there's a there's a, a landslide of some form has come out here onto the track, uh, has and you can see wheels being going into it. You can actually see even from this distance, you can see the wheel set digging in. If I get rid of all this, you can see where the wheels have, have dug in. Those might not be the leading vehicles' wheels, by the way, because all the other vehicles' wheels actually, as as the report says, actually went through the landslide without being without being derailed by it. It was only the leading power car that was derailed by it. Um, the train, uh, having gone through there, and we'll talk through this in the report, but, but you can see it's been derailed. The unfortunate circumstances, there was a bridge as well uh, involved. And of the six vehicles uh, involved in the incident, here is the, uh, this is the leading power car. Um, this is the trailing power car. And then the other vehicles are, there is a, there's a, a coach here, and the details of this we'll, we'll go into. There's, there's the, the, the kind of the trailing coach here. But perhaps most upsettingly, uh, oh, sorry, there's another coach here that's rolled onto its roof. But I think most upsettingly, there is also a coach that you might not be able to make out that is actually underneath both of these two coaches here, uh, essentially squashed flat. So um, that's the incident. And I think before we talk any more about it, uh, I want a lot of people quote... Um, a lot of people quote this. Well, no. A lot of people quote other things. They quote first fatal derailment and all this. Thing. I, I, no, it's not. So the correct description. Not that I like particularly like these sorts of kind of um, headline grabbing descriptions. Anyway, this is the first fatal derailment of a British mainline passenger train in thirty years. Key point being British mainline passenger train. Um, a lot of the descriptions are saying first fatal derailments it's since since Greyrig, which is not correct because it completely erases Sandylands, the Croydon tram derailment. This is a railway. Just because it's a tram, this is a rail. This is a, these are these are rails. This is the permanent way. This is a train. It has there's it has all the all the hallmarks of a railway system. Just because it's a tram, does not you know. Just because it's a tram and 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 runs on roads occasionally, it is running on rails. It is a railway system. We should not erase the fact that this incident was an absolutely horrific uh, incident that happened. Perhaps one that we'll explore in future because there's a lot to unpick about it. I think it's worth. I think I'd like to talk more about light rail stuff anyway. Um, you know, not all the doom and gloom, some of the good stuff there. Um, this was a absolutely awful uh, tragedy. Uh, well, it was a, it was a, an incident that happened, and and it was getting erased a lot in the news, and it, that really bothered me. The other point is that it erases a lot of other things that happen on the railway network. Um, 
Yeah, exactly. Chris McKenna points out Sandylands was very much a railway accident and not a road accident. Um, it is, um, yeah, it, it's it's it was a rail. The incident was a railway incident. Oh, sorry. Um, so you've got this. So the reason I put this up is because it's not just you know fatal. We can pat ourselves on the back all we like about the lack of fatal derailments that have been happening on the railway network, but um, I'd also like to point. Let me just change. Sorry, I just need to change my pointer color again so you can actually see what's going on. Um, I'd also like to point out these are the fatalities that have been happening. These are non-staff, so so kind of pub- passenger fatalities that have been happening on the railway network. Uh, actually, since Greyrig, and you can see, so you've got you've got um, Greyrig was in two thousand seven. Actually, Greyrig was in two thousand eight, uh, two thousand six, two thousand seven. Because I think it was early two thousand seven. Um, might be wrong. I, people can get the date up there. I can't exactly remember what the date was. Um, so actually, it's not in this. It, it was in the kind of the previous year. Um, but anyway, so each of the these are all fatalities that have resulted on that have happened on the railway, and also they're not including all the serious injuries that happen on the railway. And the majority of these are occurring at, or a large majority of these are occurring at the platform train interface. I know you've all heard me talking about level boarding before, or hopefully you all have. I'd recommend going and watching the previous episode about it. But this is a risk that is not reducing on our railway network, unlike all others, right? Um, so this is, this is you know, and actually, if you look recently, there is, a, there is an increasing trend. If, you look at, if you're looking at five-year rolling averages, there is an increasing trend in, 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 um, in passenger or kind of non-workforce fatalities, as the, as the statistical measure is. So, so you can see here, you know, falling from the platform edge, um, there's there's one as a result of, uh, of of assault and abuse. So you know there are lots of things going on here that we should not erase just by looking at the the you know the big scary crash rail crash related things. The, the, these are things we need to fix too. So sorry, that was just a quick word on on, on kind of I think explaining that, which is very important. So let, let's okay, let's very very quickly now talk about something fairly abstract but relevant. I'm going to start with talking about a thing that is very permanent way related. It's, it's my my discipline. Which is derailed vehicle retention, and in particular, um, I say EG guardrails. Actually, that should probably be IE guardrails. And what I mean by guardrails are, well, firstly, this is a picture, kind of a. I was talking about somber pictures of staff. This is a picture of the staff, and this is this is where the train the train has whizzed through here. It's not very clear because it's anyway. You sort of see what's going. On. The train is going this direction. You can see it's taken out the parapet. You can see this troughing is all wrecked up. Um, but there's no protection to stop it having rolled off. You know, there's nothing that stop, has stopped the train kind of rolling off the side. Um, I'm going to change my pen color again because uh, red and green is a bit of a nightmare. Let's go with yellow. Hopefully that's a bit clearer. Um, so, yeah, the train's gone over here and, and it's kind of it's already by this point, it's kind of dragging off the side. Now, there's a, a tool we have as, as, as permanent way engineers that can protect structures or even just uh, tall embankments. It's called... It's called guardrails, and I don't mean these things over here. I don't mean the, the, these. These you can call these guardrails, but they're pedestrian guardrails. I mean permanent way guardrails. So the train, a train approaching in this direction, so a train coming along this way, um, will uh, if it if it gets derailed, its wheels will fall either side of the rails. And the theory is that to to then mount and ride over these guardrails requires quite a lot of adi- quite a lot of additional energy so if you've got a, a derailment that with, with a train that's generally going to be going broadly in line with quite a shallow angle with these they, these guardrails will broadly keep the the tr- derailed train in line with the track and therefore on a structure or or at the top you know whether it's a bridge or an embankment um their efficacy is you know it's not guaranteed but 
in in sort of lots of of, of collisions you'll find and, I, and i'm hoping that you know and this is mentioned at the end of the report as a thing uh, the interim report is something that's being investigated my hope is that you know basically the standards for applying these are pretty uh pretty loose um uh, David Clark is asking if the previous figures discount suicide. Yeah, those don't count suicides. I'm afraid to say that suicides account for a, a huge number of uh, railway fatalities annually, hundreds of people. Um, the 1920 year cuts off uh, just after COVID hit, right? Uh, possibly, Sakura. I'm, I'm not quite sure which bit you're referring to. Anyway, right, I'm going to press on because of time. So, um, so yeah, the, the, this is a guardrail, and one of the things that, and, and I just put this picture up because before, rather than flicking back and forth, I kind of want to stick to the body of the report when we do. So that's something that's that's worth thinking about. The standards are very ambiguous as to where this gets applied. There's not a rigid set of clear standards. It's it's risk based, and as a result of it being risk based, you can almost black box in and out anything you like to decide whether you do or don't want a, a guardrail. Uh, it generally falls on an engineer's. Uh, preference uh, and 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 kind of the how assertive a, the, the in the case of network rail how assertive the contractor's responsible engineer is kind of the lead design engineer is um so yeah so that's that's guardrails and you can see that if the guardrail had been placed here there's a potential that if, if you had a guardrail so you'd have a guardrail here on the approach to the um to the bridge uh, it would run through the structure by the way uh, and then uh, it, would, it would run through the structure and then it would flare at the other end. And, and likewise, you kind of doing the same uh, the other direction. There's a chance that if you had a guardrail, the vehicle, the, the leading power car would have kept on, would have been kept in line over the structure. And you wouldn't have had the vehicles pulling off over and you wouldn't have had as severe a, a collision. So that's uh, the investigation is looking at, at that in more detail. But I think that's something that is is relevant. And I think it's something that Network Rail should be looking at in advance of this. Um, so, uh, let me see. So, uh, oh, Ella, let's see. Right. Uh, oh, there's some good discussion. Yeah, if, if you want me in on this, I'm glad there's some good discussion happening. But if you want me in on that, just at me in and I'll um, I'll cover it. Would guardrail, Gareth asks, would guardrails help dissipate the energy in a drill? It's not so much about dissipation. It's more, they they mean the train will continue with in line, which is important because it, 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 it helps with coupler integrity. And it means that if the vehicle is burying its, uh, wheels into ballast and braking sleepers that does mean you dissipate energy better than if it's rolling off down an embankment without anything pinning the wheels you know potentially gaining rather than losing momentum so um yes you could i think some people are seeing this picture this these pictures and i say these are not nice pictures they show how um how much of an impact you know how how awful this incident was so yeah these these pictures are going to show the scale of, the, of this incident right so we're going to now talk about the subject that i think a lot of people were expecting me to talk about rightly which is crashworthiness uh particularly i'm going to talk about some quick i'm going to talk about crashworthiness i'm going to cover some quick kind of gb examples actually just just very loosely i'm going to talk about um kind of uh unpowered coaching stock because it, 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 it covering those it gives a useful timeline of the way that, that crashworthiness has developed so we're going to start with the br mark one coach 1951 um just an enormous number of these were made absolutely huge numbers of these were were, manu were, were kind of created um uh yeah just huge numbers uh i don't even, yeah i don't even know how just just lots thousands of them were built they kept building these until 1974 um, and it was considered, and lots of, you know, include, 1974 includes all the multiple units that were using the Mark I coach design. And um, in the 1950s, these these were considered to have decent crashworthiness, but that's because um, everything was made of matchsticks at the time. So these were, you know, they had all steel construction. These were considered to be 
they did have decent crashworthiness, but that was in 1951, you know. We still had timber frame vehicles traveling around at the time. Um, Ella, Ella's asking, Eddie Owen is, sorry, is asking, uh, would the outside rail act as a guardrail in this case? So you, you, you potentially have both, actually. You can have flared outer rails on the approach to structure, then guardrails on the inside. There's, there's kind of quite a lot you can do with guardrails. There's a variety of, of, um, of sort of, uh, there's a, there's a variety of layouts you can use depending on what sort of track layout you have, what energy you're planning to dissipate. You kind of, you, and some of that's from engineering insight, some kind of uh, intuition, some of it's from risk assessment, some of it's from a, a, a more detailed analysis. Um, uh, Ella is saying, would you say that guardrails are more about energy redirection? Yeah, so so you're not, you, all you're doing is sort of um, trying to keep the vehicle in line with the track that's what guardrails are all about they're, they're not really doing anything more than just keeping the they're not really about energy dissipation they're just about keeping the train on the track and helping to do and by doing that by keeping the train on the track you're stopping it from going off and hitting things uh, that it shouldn't be um chris jackson japan is fitting guardrails on extensive sections of shinkansen via to reduce the derailment related risks in the event of an earthquake yep yeah. so to be honest it's a similar approach i expect to see in the uk uh, or in GB, certainly based on the fact that we are having an increasing number of, there is an increasing risk in um, in landslip, in, in climate-related uh, failures, and as a result of that, we maybe need to think about better mitigation. Um, so, uh, discussion, discussion. So, there we are. Yeah, um, uh, Chris Jackson saying around 4,500 Mark 1 hold stock and a symbol, similar number of multiple units. That's a huge volume of rolling stock. Anyway, so... Sorry, I digress. Um, so the Mark One coach, 1951, and um, at 37 years old, the 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 Mark One coaching stock was involved in probably its most notorious um, crash. Although it had been involved in lots of other crashes, uh, derailments. Um, so this was obviously this was Clapham. By this point, I'm, I'm sorry, but these trains were already well past their use-by date. So, so at 37 years old, you had Clapham, which is a pretty horrific uh, rail crash. Uh, and to be honest, when you, in, in terms of the coaches that were in, in amongst the thick of that that crash, this next picture basically shows all that was left of them. Uh, you know, it's, it's just not a lot left. I'm gonna let me just just do this. Yeah, so. Not a lot left of them, to be honest. These disintegrated completely. Um, and it still took until, I think it took until, well, so yeah. So the, the Mark 1 coach, it was kind of retired from mainline service in 2005. Actually, I've got them, I've got, I've got the number of 2010 for, for like getting them properly out of timetable mainline use, which might be the case for the multiple unit stock relying on it. So actually, that I should have put that. So actually, that was, I say 54 years after introduction, but actually that's really 59 years if it was 2010 for the multiple units that are they're basically identical to the to the to the coaching stock um so that's a that's 50 around just over 50 years that they were in service you know far too long but that's how long they were in service for right let's move on to the mark ii coach now this had um interestingly had less of like a, a particularly interesting service because it um so it's only about 2000 of these uh, 1800 of these were built um between 63 and 77 um and uh yeah, there it is nice uh, mark ii coach there and and they're kind of they're, they're quite an advancement on the on the mark one um but still you know they're still fundamentally a pretty you know they're, they're not oh someone asked a very important question but they didn't add me in and i forgot about it and i've just remembered what is crashworthiness well okay and I, I, this will get explained as i go through crashworthiness is the behavior of a uh, a vehicle when it's not when it's when it's come off the rails 
So whether that's that's things like, um, you know, whether it's uh, oh, I do need my my scribblies. Uh, whether that's looking at the, the the robustness of the couplers, you know, so so how well the, the the kind of couplers behave to kind of keep the vehicle in line and stop it twisting or indeed snapping. And you know, ideally in a in a derailment, you want the train to stay upright. The coupler helps with that. You also want all the various coaches to stay connected to each other because that generally helps keep them in line as well. Um, so the behavior of couplers is one. Um, the way that bogies behave, these are bogies, which is a, a bogie is a, a frame connecting two axles with four wheels on it. Um, that allows kind of longer vehicles to negotiate tighter curves. Um, how well these stay attached to the train is uh, is another key uh, kind of key point of crashworthiness. Bogie retention, as it's called. Um, things like window uh, integrity. You know, do the windows all smash? And frankly, people get flung out of them. This is something that happens. Um, that's an important query. And another one is how do these things? How do they behave in terms of the, how they move? So this is also you know end crash end crumple zones. So does this does this kind of uh, get all squished up and, and messed up? in order to absorb, uh, so likewise at the other end, so that you have what's known as collision energy management. So rather than staying, you don't want to have a completely robust coach because you turn everyone inside, everyone inside will suffer from horrible forces and and get thrown around horribly. So actually you you aim to to be absorbing, you know, megajoules worth of energy in designing structures that that absorb energy at the the end, just like a car. You have a crumple zone in a car, it's the same for modern design of, of rolling stock. Um, the other thing is then things like bending strength, so how much the, the vehicle kind of uh, bends either kind of in, in, in this plane or, or sort of um, in, in this way as well. Um, you also have rollover strength, so that's the extent to which this thing can get squashed from various angles, whether it's squashed flat or, or kind of... So um, So you've got all these different sorts of forces being... And, and the standards have... have the standards have been updated quite a bit in more recent years. There's a lot of work in the 90s to improve uh, vehicle uh, crashworthiness. Actually, a lot of work going on in, in Europe, actually. Uh, interesting, the early Pendolinos, the early Fiat, you know, Fiat when they were manufacturing the early Pendolinos, um, they were doing a lot, of, subsequently consumed by what is now Alstom, um, we're doing a huge amount of work on 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 um, double skinned aluminium rolling stock and improving that crashworthiness. And as a result of that, we you know we benefit from that in the UK because of privatization. We actually fell quite dramatically behind in terms of crashworthiness development. Anyway, on with our on with our kind of brief potted history. Oh, college. So yeah, the, the Mark interesting. The Mark II was in quite a few incidents, but no really high energy ones. I, I think possibly there were some Mark IIs at college, but all of these you can see all these corrugated uh, roofs. Uh, these are all Mark III coaches. The corrugated roofs are all Mark III's, and this is a Mark I. This is unmistakably a Mark I over here, um, which is not fair particularly well. You can see it's been squashed kind of into parallelogram. I, I think this is a Mark II. Uh, is it? Oh, no, that's a Mark III as well. There is There are Mark II coaches in here, but again, I, I'm not sure the extent So I'm not sure the extent to which high-energy incidents uh, tested the Mark IIs. I couldn't find any. I couldn't re- recall any. There might well be some. Um Yes, so so that's the, so that's the that's the Mark II coach, which was retired from mainline service, I think, in 2012, which was uh, again about 50 years after their introduction. And um, you could argue that that's you know 50 years is not a bad run for for rolling stock. Um, so uh, let's see, have a look at this. Uh, yeah, Chris Jackson saying uh, crashworthiness also includes energy absorption and collision when the vehicles are not derailed. Uh, yes, yes, indeed. So so yeah, lots of lots of things like that. Um, and these countries have corruptible zones. Yep, cover that one, Matt. Gareth Williams, did privatization play a part in delaying the withdrawal of Mark 1 stock? Absolutely, it did, yes. Um, the rolling stock operating companies had zero interest financially in 
coming up with new rolling stock. So privatisation absolutely worsened the safety on our railways in relation to a huge number of things. Um, yeah, that's definitely true. Um, but that, to an extent, might well... You, you can very likely say that about nationalisation when it happened in, in, in 1948. Um, you know, major on you know kind of drastic changes often the, the benefit of nationalization was at least that things were still being kept you know that you weren't doing the fragmentation it's the fragmentation of privatization that was the real hit to safety but you know massive uh change ideological change is not necessarily a good thing on a railway incremental alterations based on best practice and, and, and best understanding of practice is, is a far better way to do things so that's uh, the mark two coach the mark three coach which was actually pr- uh, prototyped in 1968 this is an old coach, folks. The Mark III coach is an old coach. Here it is. Um, yeah, there were so so yeah so nineteen so where, where am I? I'm just having a look at some of my my pace notes here that I've got just to make sure I'm saying things that are useful. Yeah, so sorry. Yeah, college. I, 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 I've said all that stuff. Um, so uh, yeah, there were these were kind of designed in '68. Uh, sorry, they were designed in '68, and then prototypes ended up getting rolled out in '72. But they are they were they were designed in the late '60s. You know, they were designed only five years after the uh, the Mark IIs. They 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 took a lot of knowledge from the Mark IIs, but they they did leap quite far, further forwards. They were they were um yeah I think was it about 850 of these were built. Um, compared to contemporary stock in the 1970s, the crashworthiness of the of the Mark III coach was good in the 1970s crashworthiness was was again it was good in, in the 1980s but there was a leap forwards in well a few things happened in you know there was there was a leap forwards in in the development of, of rolling stock in through the through the mid to late 80s and and through the 90s you had a lot of new new kind of uh, welding techniques you had a lot of new design techniques aluminium became very popular as a as a, as a means of and yes if you look at um uh, Labrook Grove, and you compare the way that the uh, the aluminium-bodied turbo and the HST interact with each other, the turbo came off worse. The reason it came off worse is because it it had well, firstly, the welding was pretty shoddy in the manufacture of those vehicles, um, and also that they uh, <laughs> let's just say that yeah, the design the design of those turbos was not to the level that you'd look at modern uh, aluminium vehicles uh, to have the, the modern aluminium rail vehicles are substantially more crashworthy than the the original turbos were so uh mark three coaches what else have i got to say about them uh well not much more than uh you know only 30 uh, only at 36 years old so this is 2004 we had kind of the most recent major mark, major high speed incident involving mark 3 coaches which is um here at often nervit um, so a level crossing, someone drove their car in front of the train deliberately, derailed it. It was split by the point by some points. They, I've, I've, I think I've talked about after Nervit before. Actually, I talk about my lectures as a thing for designers to always look beyond. You know, to designers to always don't just look at the rail strings. If there are any designers watching this, don't just look at the three D rail strings. Go to Google Earth and look at the damn site and see what's going on because. Points like this should just never be this close to a level crossing. This level crossing has now been replaced with the, with the bridge, I think. Uh, anyway, uh, not good. You can see that the Mark III coaches have not they've not fared well down here. They have not fared well at all. Um, yeah, so here's some pictures of, of close-ups of these. And you can see when we talk about crashworthiness, this is bending strength. This, this, this has been bent. It's a coach that has been bent uh, almost like it's been bent over, a, over someone's knee. And... Um, 
yeah, uh, not not good, not good. And then again, this image, which I think this coach, um, I, I bring up again in another picture, this coach here, you can see the rollover strength. I, I think that's been struck by a bogey that's been released from another vehicle, and that's caused the damage there. So a lot of damage, a lot of energy was dissipated in this in this crash. And so the Mark III coach, it's still not retired from mainline service, and we are, we're 53 years after their kind of, um, well, I said after introduction, it's a little less than that from them being introduced. They were introduced in 72, so... Um, but it's nearly 50 years. You know, these these are 50-year-old trains. Um, yeah, the turbo units did have lots of flawed uh, welding. The, the the welding the weld testing showed that pretty much all the welding on those units was 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 the weld material, which should always be stronger than the, the parent material, was actually weaker than the parent material, which means that the, the weld becomes a weak point. Not good. Anyway, oh, the Mark IV coach. This is the last of the um, the the homegrown British Rail um, coaches. Uh, if you like, uh, developed in 1989, or sorry, developed and then and then built in 1989. There are only 302 of these built. Um, I have a soft spot for the Mark IVs. They were built with uh, kind of slight, slightly tilted, a slightly tilted uh, profile. Sorry, a slightly kind of raked profile on on the potential that they might end up tilting, which they never did. Um, so so that, you know, some people prefer the Mark IVs. I always prefer the Mark IVs. I never got the fuss about the Mark IVs. But they're, yeah, anyway, they're, they're nice rolling stock. Um, I, I did like this livery. Some people didn't like this livery. This is the GNER livery. It's not the livery they arrived in, but they do look very nice. I tried to find one in, in Swallow, but it just doesn't... There doesn't seem to be any good high-res pictures of them in Swallow livery, which is a shame. Um, uh, weren't the Mark III's built mostly for override strength? Yeah, that's a very good point. So these things were built to so that they didn't... A lot of the issues you have with the Mark I coach was that they telescope, which is essentially where two coaches... Uh, rode into each other, you know, actually rode in. And sorry, the Mark Ones even were built to avoid telescope, and they were designed, but they still, uh, you still have this issue. You, they, they still had had the issue with the energies involved. Telescoping were trained, their kind of the bodies just kind of crumpled through each other, like a telescope being, being uh, compressed. Uh, the Mark Twos, and then again the Mark Threes, particularly the Mark Threes were very robust. They're very strong, but they had no energy absorbing features. Um, they were just designed to be quite strong. They had kind of the first to have fully integral monocoque chassis-ish. Um, and as a result of that, that, as a result of the fact they were kind of leading the way in being monocoque chassis, they didn't incorporate lots of the things that only a few years later monocoque chassis did. So so whilst they were quite a step forward from the stuff they were, the Mark III's replaced, they were quite a lot far, they were quite far behind things that came only very recently afterwards, kind of very shortly afterwards. Um, but we built a lot of them, and they lasted a while. So we didn't build anything new in terms of coaching stock until the Mark IVs for um, for the for the for the Institute two two fives on the East Coast Mainline. Um, anyway, so I don't really have much more to say about them. The Mark IVs uh, they've tragically been tested in two major um, derailments. First was at. Um, Hatfield, uh, which I've talked a lot about, I think, in a previous episode, actually, um, that these were tested. And actually, at, at this point, you can see you can see all the couplers of 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 kind of you see the couplers have held. Actually, the only point where they didn't hold was where, and it's pretty difficult circumstances given that an entire rail disintegrated under the train as it was moving. But the the, the essentially the, the the vehicle kind of rolled over and then struck an OLE mast and then that's where a lot of the damage and, and indeed the, the injuries and fatalities uh, occurred great heck um, yeah so as, as you as, as some of you might know this locomotive here is the same locomotive as the one that was involved in this incident here which is great heck which I talked about on the on well there's your problem podcast and I actually talked about quite a lot of this in the well there's your problem podcast and indeed I've lifted these slides from the ones that I sent over to to Justin and the, and the, and the crew uh, great heck, the Selby 
kind of uh, derailment was a horrific crash as a result of uh, a negligent driver on the road, not the, not train drivers. The railway was entirely uh, free from guilt in this situation. The, the, just lots of unfortunate Swiss cheese holes all lining up at once. Uh, the forces involved in this were absolutely horrific, and the, the coaching stock didn't survive well where the energy levels were huge. But where the energy levels were down to, you know, if this had been Mark III coaching stock, it would have been even worse. You know, the, the, the coaching stock did all right. But again, this coaching stock is still designed broadly with the same design principles as the Mark III stock in terms of its, uh, you know, great leaps and bounds, but still uh, not incorporating lots of the features, some of the anti-climb features, some of the energy absorption features that modern rolling stock has, and indeed some of the rollover strength. Um, yeah, the images, as I said, this is why I did a, content, uh, a kind of a content warning. These images are horrifying and upsetting. Remember, I should also I should I should remind everyone that rail is by far the safest way to move on land. You know, this is Americans love their TV programs about rail crashes and they they fixate on them. And I think it impacts on people's views of the railway as a non-safe. You know, and there's all sorts of films about rail crashes. The reality is that railways are an incredibly safe way to move around. Um, you, you know, you're 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 like 400 times safer inside the train than you are walking to the station. You are uh, 21 times safer. Uh, you know, you're 21 times more likely to be killed or severely injured in a in in a car than you are in a train. You know, trains are incredibly safe. That doesn't mean we should. The, the reason we're looking at images, the reason that, that we kind of dwell on some of these things, is uh, for, for me as an engineer, is so I can learn from it. I can learn from it. Uh, Ella developer saying wrong elevators are. Yeah, but elevators. No. I'm. Uh, yeah, sorry, Matt Baker, if you joined after the content. Well, that's a very good point. Um. Yes. So. Um, let's see. What's oh? There's some interesting discussion going on. That kind of what's Chris Jackson? What are you saying about official designation? That looks kind of interesting. Anyway. Uh, anyway, right. So. Right. Uh, no, the Mark V isn't in this list because the Mark V comes afterwards, and I don't know much about the crashworthiness of the Mark Vs. Although I assume, based on, although I don't hold CAF maybe in particularly high regard, uh, I, I assume they, they will be. They are built to meet current standards, and the, the crashworthiness standards uh, since the mid two thousands have absolutely they have leapt forward. So the the crashworthiness of a train built before the mid two thousands and after the mid so kind of almost before two thousand and ten and after two thousand and ten, there is a huge difference in crashworthiness because the standards have really stepped up uh, interestingly they've stepped up at the expense of low speed derailments as we learned at neville hill with that iet crash but that's uh, that's another discussion ah someone was asking about jacob's bogies um owen o'neill and uh, some, someone else previously was asking about jacob's bogies jacob's bogies are where the bogey is not rather than being underneath each coach individually i should should have a coach train up here shouldn't i just get, get a hornby coach up here rather than having the the, the the bogies you know a bogey underneath let me draw this thing it's the best way to draw this. Probably not with the yeah. Let's do it here. So rather than having um the Wacom, rather than having the bogies underneath each uh, each wheel like kind of each each like this, and then likewise here, you know, you have the uh, the bogies underneath each each wheel set. Uh, you have bogies that are set up like uh, like this, where you have uh, and there we go. The bogey actually sits underneath each one, and and, and likewise you have a bogey sort of uh, set set between, and then and then kind of when you've got the at the front, you'll obviously have the, have a single bogey. But the point is, the, the Jacob's bogey, uh, Jacob's, uh, Jacob's bogey. My terrible handwriting. Uh, a Jacob's bogey there, rather than a conventional bogey. Um, and, and yes, those do. Uh, so where those have we've had, de there've been derailments. There've been derailments of um, of uh, okay, 
the, the, the kind of the TGV based stock have derailed at very high speeds and have been kept in line because of Jacob's bogies. So Jacob's bogies are very good for keeping the vehicle in line uh, and crash awareness. Um, so let me uh, let me first of all clear all this. So so the Mark IV coach is still in operation. It's only thirty two years after it was introduced. Um, you know they're still they're still youngish rolling stock. But again, as I say, that that leap that's happened in pretty recent years, only about 10, 15 years ago, that leap in crash worthiness means that pretty much anything before the mid two thousands has quite a different. Certainly before two thousand, but anything before the mid mid two thousands has quite a different crash worthiness rating to to modern stock. Um, and a good example of that is if I look at some seven-year-old stock, so some stock from that was developed. I mentioned Fiat earlier, later gobbled up by Alstom. They were developing their their Pendolinos, which then it later evolved into our Pendolino, our Class 390, which has involved a, a great in the in the derailment a grey rig, which is the last mainline fatal derailment. Um, uh, and uh, you know, a, a Glaswegian lady lost her life uh, in this incident, in this derailment. Uh, but this, the reason I want to talk about Greyrig is because Greyrig and Carmen have a lot of similarities in that you had uh, a flat-ish curve, you have a train derailing as a result of uh, you know, something it's struck. In, in the case of the, the derailment mechanism is quite different in Greyrig because it, it, it struck a set of S&C that, that split apart. In, in the case of Carmen, it was striking that, that landslide and being sent immediately to the outside. Um, but in the case of, of Greyrig, you have, um, you have a, a larger train, you have more momentum, you have higher speeds. And you have a substantially better vehicle performance. These vehicles uh, were subjected to immense forces, and you can see that the couplers have performed pretty damn well. You know, okay, you've got a couple of failures down here, but actually, coupler couplers have kept the train broadly in line throughout. You can see that the the fact you can see all the bogies here, all the bogies have been almost all the bogies. I'm not sure if all the bogies, but almost all the bogies have been retained, which means that you don't have three or four tons of metal flying around. Um, and you have, um, and you can see that in terms of damage to the vehicle, the rollover strength of these vehicles is the deformation is minimal. These are very strong vehicles, very crashworthy train. Um, uh, it's spelled Jacobs, actually uh, SM6 Allegro. It is, it's, it, they can be spelled J- Jacobs, but actually they are commonly spelled Jacobs with a C. Uh, it's, they've, they've been kind of in common parlance as Jacobs Boogies with a C for a long time. Um, so both are correct. So. Uh, compare that to here's another image of Carment, 52 year old stock crashing in in kind of coming off the rails derailing in 2020 and you can see the difference yeah you've got a boat you know bogies have all come flying out in all directions you have uh, rolling stock that's pretty that's rolled over it's split apart you know you don't have the the level of you know to, by the time you get to the end of the train this train's still largely railed um, the energy dis- has been dissipated by the leading vehicles. In in this tree is the is the power car, and you can see the, the, the these vehicles are hugely damaged, smashed windows. And I, the last thing to point out, this is, I don't think, it, this looks like it's just something flat that has been rendered with the imagery of the livery of a Mark III into Seven City coach. This has been completely crushed. It's just absolutely appalling. You know the the huge difference. And so I want to very briefly. I'm already conscious. Of time, I'm already conscious that we're going through. And this is, this is potentially going to be a a longer episode. But I think it's worth us going through and understanding what we can from this. So I'm just going to throw some comparisons up between these two incidents, right? Um, because I think it's relevant to the discussion I'm going to go through. I'm not going to dwell. I'm going to hammer through the next few slides because I, I think I don't want to make the point. I think I want the point to be made to you. 
So Greyrig in 2007, um, you had the speed, the train was going at 95 miles an hour when it derailed, 153 kilometers an hour. At Carmen, the train was going at 73 miles an hour, so 117 kilometers an hour. The train mass at Greyrig, 466 tons. At Carmen, only 275 tons, quite a lot less. So the energy involved in the collision, at Greyrig, you had uh, the train energy, so that's the, the, kind of the, the energy that had to be dissipated from the point that the train derailed. You have 421 megajoules at Greyrig. That's an, an enormous uh, amount of energy to dissipate. The energy at Carmen was a, a small fraction of that, only 145 megajoules. To, to kind of put that in, in kind of percentages, if you like, Carmen only involved 34% of the energy dissipation that was involved at Greyrig. So quite a lot less energy dissipation, right? Um, so... Uh, kind of, kind of, a couple of other things that I that may be to see off, like oh, buts, but a couple of other oh, buts. Well, the un- uncompensated cant deficiency. So this is the curvature. So this is a, in the case of Carmen, I've estimated this based on the point of derailment and the fact that it derailed on a transition rather than on constant geometry, which makes things a little bit more complicated. But the um, the uncompensated um, cant deficiency. So this is essentially the lateral acceleration being submitted onto the vehicle, how much it's being pulled off the alignment um, at Greyrig. It was looking at the geometry, uh, not quite double, but kind of substantially larger than the the lateral acceleration being submitted on the vehicle when at the point at which it derailed at Carment. So you can't argue, yeah, but it was being thrown off the the embankment more rapidly. The other point is the height of the embankment at, at Greyrig. The embankment was fifteen meters high. At Carment, it was only twelve meters high. So again, in terms of energy dissipation, yes, at Carment there was a there was a bridge where there wasn't a bridge, but at Greyrig there were OLE masts. So um. In terms of comparing these, I think they are a, it's a valid comparison to look at the difference between um, the, the difference between uh, Greyrig here, uh, which was a you know a much more full train. Frankly, it's something massively fortuitous. Uh, it's not fortuitous is maybe well fortuitous is the right word. Current was a tragedy, and three people were killed, and everyone on the train. The other six passengers were all seriously injured, but thank goodness it was not a busy train because the damage. At particularly this coach here is uh, uh, the, the damage at that coach, uh, particularly that, that kind of coach in the middle of the train is horrific, absolutely horrific. And I think comparing these two is is not a... I've had people accusing me of, 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 of this being a, a, an irrelevant comparison. I'm, I'm sorry, this is not an irrelevant comparison. This is an entirely relevant comparison because the, the Class 390 which is involved in a higher energy collision with more ex- kind of more extraneous, kind of more aggressive circumstances performed substantially better than uh, you know the 50 year old hst as you'd expect it to but that raises the question about what why are hsts running so let's very quickly pick into features about the hst so key thing here's the hst much beloved i love the hst i adore it but it's a museum piece right these were fantastic they were revolutionary at the time well actually i occasionally argue that the air-conditioned mark three coaches are more important than the hst itself but anyway the, the the HST did it meant that you know average speeds of, of journeys in Britain were the highest in the world, uh, you know lots of good stuff about the HST, but it's it's a history piece, right? Fifty years old, shouldn't be running anymore. And through the nineties, with an increase, in, you know the the safety reduction as a result of privatization, as a result of fragmentation, as a result of a variety of things, not all privatization related, but lots of things coming in to get all together at once, um, resulted in a series of of serious high speed collisions on the actually on the great western there were two you know you had south hall and you had lambert grove both horrific this is south hall where uh, uh, because the aws had been isolated the train collided with a, a freight train that was crossing um and 
Well, thankfully for the driver, well, actually, we'll get to the driver in a second, but you can see that the scale of the destruction to these coaches, this is an incredibly high energy collision, right? This is huge high energy. So even the Pendolino would have fared very, very poorly in this, in this, in this, in this collision. There's huge energy involved, um, but possibly not this poorly. I think the main thing we'll get to is, is yeah, so we've shown you that, but anyway, right, crash with it. Let's talk about passenger vehicle integrity. Um, here's a Mark III from after Nerva, and you can see the damage that's been done to this vehicle as it's rolled over. Um, it's not performed well. Whereas you look at the you look at the equivalent of a of a derailment at, you know, again similar energy. This start, this isn't involving a um, th there's no uh, no embankment involved here. You can see the damage compared to a, a vehicle that is rolled over an embankment with a huge amount of force in it that's actually been pulled over. It's had the same fo bending forces potentially that, that that you saw it or or sort of kind of it's had bending forces on it because it's got a certainly in the case of of, of after Nervit. You know, after Nervit, you saw actually they're kind of quite a way back, I think, aren't they? Like ways back and show after Nervit. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so after Nervit, you can see coaches being twisted here. There was no collision with another train here, and yet the, 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 the fact that the vehicle was jackknifing, you ended up with this failure. Whereas if we skip forwards to um, back to uh, Grey Rig, similar forces here, and there's no such bending going on. In fact, the train almost looks like you could put it back on the, on the tracks. Um, and again, come back to this picture. You know, the performance is not great. So what other features are there? Bogey retention. This is key. Um, so so this picture here, you can see the bogies have, you can see where the bogies have come off. I'm actually not going to point at the point at the screen anymore because I think it's kind of a little bit disrespectful to kind of point all over the thing. So I'm going to stop scribbling all, all over the, all over this. But I think you can see, you can see what's going on. Um, you can see the bogies have flown around. Bogey, in this case, it doesn't look like bogey retention has been a, a, a particular issue, although actually the bogies not being retained meant that the energy was dissipated differently and, and the vehicles could come off the track more easily. So as we'll get to in the report, um, you know, the mass of a BT-10 bogey, which is the, the bogey of you know, each of these bogies here under the, the HST is five and a half tons. So those five and a half ton bogies flying around at speed is not a good thing. Um, and actually this is, so this is the report from uh, after Nervit. And actually, I will uh, I will scribble here because basically the the point is here that uh, if I can find my mouse, if 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 bogies had been uh, let me just go in here, change this to red. If the bogies had been uh, retained, uh, they would have arrested the train under more controlled conditions, albeit with high decelerations. Yeah. So so bogie retention is a key thing. Also, kind of uh, further down, you can see kind of damage resulting from it. Um, yeah. So so. Lots of things, yeah. Lots of, lots of issues here. That, that bogey retention is very important. So let's, let's look at another thing of crashworthiness, which is coupler behavior. Again, a critical part of crashworthiness. This is a Janney coupler, which is similar to the Alliance couplers that are used on the HSTs. I think this is an Alliance coupler. It's um, hooked onto the front of a of a of, of a, either end of an Intercity two two five. In this case, it's it's kind of a Janney knuckle coupler, um, and the performance of these couplers is not great. Um, to be honest, again, coupler performance, you can see by the spray of the vehicle that couplers, the couplers failed uh, all over the place. They failed. And so there are interesting points here that I pulled out of often Nervit that are really, that are really key, um, I think. So, so kind of um, behavior of the couplers being examined uh, in terms of how, how, they, uh, how they arrest the vehicle, the way it moves around. Uh, and you can see here that the report concludes that the, the, resistance, uh, the resistance of the coupler to relative roll of the vehicle is low. Um, because you end up with rotation and a few things. A uh, couple of heads not gripping each other uh, tightly. 
um, and uh, a kind of vertical movements. These do not perform well in, in incidents. That's essentially the point of, of, of me putting this, this up. You can pause this and read it later, or you can download the Afton Nervit report and have a read of it, which, by the way, was toned down. Uh, oh, someone's saying that was a Class 90. Yeah, same, same deal. Uh, that's the front of a Class... Is it a Class 90? It's got the dark blue... Uh, I don't know that is a class 90 actually because it's got the uh, it's got the dark I don't think it is I don't think it is because it looks like it's next to a pacer as well which looks leadsy it looks like it's got West Yorkshire Metro colours anyway um, you can download the afternoon report I'd recommend but that that report is uh, and I have on good authority from several sources somewhat toned down in its in relation to the HSTs than it might otherwise have been um the camp structure of the, uh, this is this is really this is a really key thing that gets overlooked i think by just looking at the coaches this is a, this is not even modern cab structure this is a reasonably modern bit of cab structure this is the inside of a meridian class 222 and you can see all that that steel work there protecting the cab um you know uh, there's crash where there's there are anti climbers at the front to stop the cab riding up uh, if it collides yeah there there are lots of features here to protect the driver to protect the the the, the person inside the cab um Huge amounts of, of kind of steelwork protecting them. It's integral to the structure so that the cab doesn't just kind of fly fly away separately. It's integral to the vehicle, the the crash where there's the crumple zones, etc. Um, this is an example where um, potentially the the poor crashworthiness of the or the 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 total lack of crash crash structure in an HST was fortuitous in the the crash that the cab was just ripped apart and uh, sorry ripped to one side by the glancing blow of a, of a coal wagon rather than um rather than if it was a proper crash structure you might have had more energy absorption but actually arguably that would have resulted in more energy absorption at the at the the the, the power car which would have in turn res- reduced the energy absorption and it would have deflected the vehicles so arguably a lesser impact for passengers anyway this the reason this is useful is because it shows a cross section of the um, of the HST cab and shows you that it is essentially an upturned bathtub mounted facing uh, outwards with a driver inside it. There is zero crash crash structure for for the cab. Uh, what uh, so that absolutely zero, um, ze- absolutely zero crash crashworthiness whatsoever. Um, zero cab structure, zero protection for the driver. There is all there is is the base of the front of the HST with with fiberglass shell over the front. There is no crash structure at all. Uh, this is uh, again. This is what I'm not going to draw on here. I'm going to let you look and, and pick out what you can see. This is the power car. This is an image of the power car just after the collision, still on fire, at Carmont, and the cab structure uh, isn't there. The cab structure has been entirely. It's just. It's just gone. It's been entirely. It has entirely disappeared, um, and we'll we'll read through why that might be uh in the report which i am going to get to i know it's already eight o'clock crikey time has gone but i think this stuff is important um so and you can sort of see again the 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 power car having having burnt out is in the middle here and you can sort of see it allows you to see which orientation it has it allows you to pick out what's happened and, and what is no longer there and there's an image here which i'm going to zoom in on which i think shows you part of the cab structure not being anywhere near the um not being anywhere near the the power car, I'm not going to draw on the on the thing because I think it's not it's not it's not it's not right to do that. But I think anyone looking at this can see some of where the debris from the cab has ended up. I'm just going to so if I read this out, I'm going to read these words. Um, so this is this, the first here is actually from the Cullen report, which is which is about Ladbroke Grove. 
And so this is this is just, and then I'm going to read from After Nerve as well. In the leading power car of the HST, the driver's survival space was, in the words of the experts, severely compromised. The cab, which was constructed of GRP, which is basically plastic, it's the stuff, it's fiberglass, uh, would not meet modern structural requirements. Dr. Kirk expressed the view that the cab had no significant structural strength, that it could not resist loads above the underframe, the underframe being the kind of the, the flat bit, almost like if, if you imagine kind of the top bit of a, or the bottom part of a, a kind of a flatbed a kind of wagon, that's basically what the HST looks like. It's a flatbed wagon with a v- with kind of the engine and the cab sat on top of it. Um, could not resist loads above the underframe and that it provided minimal protection for the driver in a collision. However, the experts were in agreement that even if... The, okay, so the, the 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 next bit is just talking about the context of the crash and the high energy, but that, that first section is the critical one. And likewise, after nerve it, HST power cars have a strong fabricated steel underframe to support the power equipment. The superstructure is much weaker and essentially non-structural. A GRP cab module with some lightweight steel snifting members houses the driver console and is bolted to the front of the power car. The power car was designed in the early 1970s. It does not meet the strength requirements of modern standards. So that's that's the cab structure. Uh, No protection for drivers whatsoever. Um, So my conclusion from all that, and I'm going to get to the report momentarily, but I think you can agree, hopefully, seeing that, maybe you don't agree, but hopefully I'm making the case why I don't think the HST, the high-speed train, the Intercity 125, or any of its derivative kind of uh, formations should be in in regular service. And I actually mean passenger or freight there. I I know that there are currently moves to look at um, operating high-speed freight using HSTs and ignoring the fact they're diesel engines and shouldn't be on the network anyway, they should not be they just simply should not be run drivers should be should not be forced to or should not be operating these trains it's as simple as that they're not protected at all i'm amazed that they have not been blacklisted that they were not blacklisted as a result of carmen i'm absolutely amazed by it. i realize that there are some pressures within the unions that they're these are a beloved train and it feels like these are you know much loved and there's a taboo to sort of talk against them but as a driver, if I was a new driver, I would be incredibly unhappy if I found myself uh, driving these around rather than driving around a new train. Um, so, yeah, I don't think these should be in service anymore at all. The charters, okay, that's fine. Um, you know, they're different. You know, charters are, are kind of generally treated slightly differently. So, it's uh, charters, okay. Um, but I don't think these should be in, in regular passenger or freight service. I don't think these should be in timetable service. So, um, and here's this is an image of of, of tidy up uh, after the after the derailment. So that for me is my prompt to bring up the report at last six six minutes past eight. We're going to talk about the report. So this is the interim uh, RAIB report, the Rail Accident Investigation Branch. Uh, so so the details in this are not necessarily perfect. Um, uh, so yeah, not necessarily perfect, but uh, the you know they, they, they might get updated as the report gets updated. Another key point, and they always put this in the front, this is not a thing to, to, to allocate blame. This is just looking at the circumstances and understanding where we can learn from it. So this is not about allocation of blame or liability. So don't try and... Do, there's, there's not trying to look at blame. We're trying to learn from, from what's happened. Um, uh, Jordan Jack, do you mind if I clip this? Uh, clip this... Are you, uh, clip it as in uh, take a, take the video out and use it. Yeah, sure. As long as you uh, as long as you attribute me. Um... So, uh, Gareth, does does what you're saying apply to Mark III derived DEMUs? Yeah, I, I think so. I think the Mark III derived um, DEM uh, kind of multiple units, sh- the, the 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 safety of these should you know kind of where they're operating should be considered. But the the issue with those is they're not traveling as fast. Um, I think there's a there, there's there's 
and, and they're also not necessarily yeah I, I think that the issue that they're not traveling as speedily is helps but also i mean i've not mentioned accessibility here but accessibility from my perspective is a good enough reason that hst shouldn't be operating anymore the mark three stock shouldn't be operating anymore so um yeah uh i'm gonna i'm gonna press on but i, I think yeah i think you can understand my i think hopefully i've laid out the case why why that that stock shouldn't be running anymore so let, let's have a read through this. Uh, and I, I'll just say again, I, I've not got a slide here, but this is, I need to put another content warning because some of what I read here is, is going to be it's going to be upsetting for people to read some of the detail. If you've never looked at a crash report before, they go into quite specific detail about what happens um, to, the, to the vehicle and, to, and the way the vehicle behaves through the derailment. And this might get more detailed as, um, uh, as I expect it to get more detailed as the final report comes out because they learn more. They, they, they often run simulations to understand the way the vehicles will have behaved. So um, there's a discussion. So, so the kind of the, the summary is at the start explaining kind of what happened. So it kind of at, at 9.37 hours, on, on, around 9.37 on, on Wednesday, the 12th of August, 2020, a passenger train collided with debris washed onto the track near Carmen in Aberdeenshire following heavy rainfall. The subsequent derailment resulted in the death of three people, injuries to the six other people in the train and catastrophic damage. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so there's a bit kind of this first page is just kind of talking about REIB's role, what they're for. There's the background, obviously, which talks about the location and, and it talks about the, the who had built the railway. We don't need to. This isn't stuff we need to know. It talks about the curvy alignment and it kind of talks about the geometry as well. So, kind of, it is worth saying that this that basically there's a and you can see it in the picture. I'm, I'm uh, hopefully this is nice and clear for everyone. So you can see there's a left hand uh, curve here and then it goes through. A, there's a reverse curve. It goes through and it transitions out. And I think by the time you reach the other side of the bridge, it's got a regular curvature of of, um, of 800 meters, radius of 800 meters. Sorry, not curvature, ra radius of 800 meters. But that means that from this point, which is essentially there's an infinite point of straight track, and then it gets gradually the, the radius gradually reduces and reduces and reduces. So, um, uh, so that means that the derailment happened at a, a bit of track that was shallower than 800. Uh, a radius of 800 meters 800 meters is quite tight but it was actually happening i think around about 16 about maybe 1600 meters radius because of the where it was in the transition I, I i checked i got the geometry up actually and looked at this and sort of plotted out in in brt and uh to kind of look at where the radius you know it, there's the point of derailment measured from the yeah so I, I could have a look at that and understand that's how i came up with the uh the lateral acceleration figure the uncompensated cant efficiency earlier if you want to know what cant efficiency is you can look that up on them on uh, well, you can Google it, but also it's in some of my videos about the permanent way on, on my channel. So um, there's t discussion of the signaling, discussion of the train involved. We can skip through all this. Uh, kind of a key thing, and this is where. So I've not talked about this because I don't know enough about the way that the and I and I also trust or or sort of I'm making an assumption that that, that any modification. Bearing in mind this rolling stock has had was modified to have. Um, uh, to get rid of the slam doors, I don't know whether it's plug or uh, no. I don't think it is plug doors. I think it's um, it's sliding doors. Um, but but to move to automatic doors, originally the slam doors were there. Uh, actually, it probably says in here the the yeah sliding doors, power sliding doors. Yeah, it's only the Chilton stuff that has um, plug doors, right? Anyway, so so the work was done by Wabtech to to correct those, and I I have no reason to believe, and I, and the report doesn't suggest at this point that that work resulted in a weakening of the of the body. Uh, kind of of the structural uh, kind of a lot of work that had to be done for each coach you know a lot of reconstruction work a lot of new paneling a lot of welding a lot of work had to happen to allow those sliding doors to fit but there's no suggestion uh, in here that that work was deficient and that's what resulted in the the worst crash witness that's not being suggested certainly is not being suggested yet um and in, even if it was that would be it would not be a, a liability placement it would just be stating that the crash appears to have been compromised but I, I don't think they'll i don't think they'll say that because that would be 
I don't think I think it'd be difficult for them to actually get the evidence to suggest that, to be honest. So that, that's, there's no suggestion of that being the case here. But they do describe the work. The work was being done between 2017 and 2020 by Wabtec um, in Doncaster and Kilmarnock um, to, to kind of upgrade these trains. So they got rid of the uh, the old slam doors and kind of generally brought them into to a state of looking like modern rolling stock, even if it's not rolling, modern rolling stock. There's a diagram showing where the accident is north of Carmen signal box, a picture of the train. Uh, discussion of the fact that you had the driver, the, the conductor of the train, and six passengers, and then another conductor travelling to join another train, and then the fact that the driver, uh, train's conductor, and a passenger suffered fatal injuries. Uh, so it's kind of opening with that so that you understand the severity of the incident. Uh, discussion of the organisations involved. Um, so kind of all that stuff, you know, this is the stuff that we don't need to, to pay huge attention to. What is interesting is, is, is where we start getting to the conditions. So, so we don't need to worry about the, the, the organizations involved. Um, or maybe we do because, yeah, well, so there's a discussion of the organization involved in rebuilding the drainage system, which will get to the drainage system, which is, which is what failed onto the track shortly. So the weather conditions. Um, so there were bands of heavy, locally intense rainfall on on the day before, moving across southern Scotland. Um, kind of moving, yeah, kind of little rain in eastern coastal areas between Dundee and Aberdeen. But by late in, in the evening, heavy rail was falling um, over the line. Um, kind of, uh, but it, uh, sorry, over the area. But it was actually remaining dry all day, except for light rainfall in Carment. But then, at around five a.m., the rain started falling. Um, kind of actually nearly 6 a.m there was very continuous heavy rain for three hours by the time but by the time it was 9 a.m it was dry and sunny again so um so this very short sharp intense rainfall happened and uh, so 50 nearly 52 millimeters of rain fell um at the accident site uh, which is 75 percent of the total monthly rainfall for aberdeenshire in an average august so it's a substantial you know that's a day that's not even that's three hours sorry a month that's, that's three weeks of three weeks of rainfall falling in three hours. So that's a pretty intense bit of rainfall there. I think it gives you an idea of, of scale. Um, so oh, Jordan Jack is also saying that uh, is, is uh, signed off on this route, so can add anything. Yeah, Jordan, I don't know if, how much I have to... You might be able to interject with, interject with use, useful stuff. I think people might, uh, people might be able to query things that you experience on this. And, and correct me if I get anything wrong as well. Make sure to tap me in and correct me. Uh, uh, yes, so... Um, so let's look at this. So you can see the so you can see the heavy rainfall moving up, and you can see it moving up. Uh, you can see Carmen, and then you can see the, kind of the evening, and then uh, and then this. So that's the evening of the rainfall not coming anywhere near Carmen. Then the rainfall coming up, and then you can see between so at five oh uh, five hundred, it's starting to rain. Oh uh, six hundred, very heavy rainfall. This kind of extreme patch. And you can see that it's moved from one side of Carmen across the other. So very extreme rainfall. By the time you get to to, to nine thirty, it's entirely cleared. You know the, that that rainfall is gone. Uh, so the next critical thing is uh, here's a picture of the conditions at a road near Carmen an hour before the derailment. Okay, this is quite pixely, but that to me looks like it's pretty saturated. It looks like it's actually got standing water on it. Um, so. The cutting on so this is now a description of this drainage system that was there's, there's a history of the so some drainage was installed. Um, actually, if I uh, if I get my slides back, the the drainage essentially is um, is I've, you can see my mouse, can't you? So the drainage was installed up here. There's drainage a drainage run installed coming off the top of the slope, the crest of the slope here, and then bringing bringing the drainage down, and then I think running maybe running down down here into car, into the car, into kind of the the water, Karen water down here. Um, 
Uh, yes. So, um, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, there's discussion about the works going on. Yeah, so all the work going on on the on the vehicle. If I, I dare say that my guess is that the vehicle ended up probably in better state than when it arrived in terms of overall crash weather. It's because they'd have ha- it would have had to be for them to sign it off. But we'll see anyway. That's 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 probably for to more detailed, complicated uh, investigation, which we, I don't think we'll see until in detail until the final report. So, the, so the cutting, so that cutting I've just shown you had had a history of landslips and rockfalls. There's one in 1915 which caused a train to derail um, uh, in in a cutting south of, of where the, this this the 2020 crash was. Um, there was a, a clay pipe drain had been installed along the cutting crest to intercept water flowing. Kind of there's a kind of a big lot, hill above the line that kind of gently f- slopes down, and then before it reaches the more steep cutting, and there's there's a crest drain at the end of where that changed from shallow to steep. Uh, kind of gradient is and so this this new crest drain was installed so, so they're kind of detailing the crest drain i'm not going to go into you know time is a bit of an enemy here but you can sort of see that there's a description here in paragraph 23 of, of, the, of the shape of that crest drain and, and, and where where's and there's a good diagram here explaining you can see the but the contour lines you can see the shallow contour lines there and you can see where they they steepen up dramatically on the approach to the to, you can see where the cutting is so you see this crest drain, which is very gently sloping. Uh, CP16 refers to a catch pit. So that's where a catch pit is where you, you generally break a drain and, and, and you have a, a gap underneath which water builds up, slows the flow, uh, particularly outside of storm events. And that means you get muck settling there. So the stuff that gets washed into the drain goes drops in the catch pit is caught by the catch pit. And you can essentially take the lid off, scoop that stuff out, maintain the drainage, put the lid back on, happy days. Um and so you can see catch pit 16 and then 18 and 19 there. So you can see there's this crest drain then that was... So a crest drain is a drain... Well, there's a diagram here showing... Um, uh, kind of showing what that... Ca- so the crest drain there is on the crest. So it's generally on a, on a, on a kind of in a high, on a high point rather than a low point. Um, and you can then see it drops down, drops next to the railway. Um, and then there's actually an outfall, which I think then falls into this kind of broader open channel... Um, which drops down. I don't know if it's described. Crest drain, da da da. Um, Three hundred forty meter crest drain comprised, yeah, half meter diameter, kind of four fifty mil diameter in a, a pipe in a gravel filled trench. Uh, it's a French drain that is kind of pretty standard design. Um, it then, yep. So then the gravel filled trench collected. Da, 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 uh, drain sloped gently towards the outfalls along the edge of the field, um, as the cutting depth began to reduce the drain followed the crest and at the northwest end of the cutting sloped relatively steeply uh, to cat track level um and then i think it says yeah a little above track level the crest crest drain reaches a catch pit um uh, and then um it changes direction of flows towards catch pit 19 adjacent to the railway beyond catch pit 19 so that's this this point here um so there's the change in direction between 18 and 19 towards the railway at catch pit 19 um, the drain turns, runs parallel to the railway for a short distance until it reaches an outfall into a ditch at track level. So you can see that if I get this picture up, you can see the ditch. So the, the crest drain runs down here, and then it hits, runs along the railway here, and then it, and then it comes into this drain, this kind of drain here, and this 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 ditch here then runs out into Karen Water. I think is that clear to everyone? Hopefully, um, yes. So. Yes, Kentish Rose points out there there were delays on Scotrail Mark Three work due to the more expect more than work expected uh, kind of any old vehicle that you pick apart and try and repurpose. I'm thinking of that probably the classic example is the uh, or the or the um, the Nimrod airframe based uh, MRA two sort of uh, RAF 
vehicles that were being done by BAE uh, and, and essentially the, the, the project was just cut as part of a spending review back in 2012, was it? Uh, and, and, and there's those famous pictures of the diggers just chopping up those airframes. But each airframe was unique. Uh, one of my um, colleagues actually currently used to work on those. He actually worked on Hawks and it was the same story, but the massive refurbishment of these, of these aircraft, every aircraft was different by multiple inches. Uh, and I bet it was the same on the Mark III's. Um, construction, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, manufacturing, pro- what is it? Oh, I've completely lost the word. The the production lines. Sorry, production lines were not as precise as they are now. Shall we say? Um, so so here we are. So that's a description of the of the drain and kind of a, an explanation of where that drain is. This this is important. Um, and you can sort of see that there's the surface flow, the water percolating through the soil. There's a French drain. So you've got the gravel trench here, and then you've got the pipe with the perforations at the top, and it runs through. Um, and then on the on the upslope side, you've got the permeable membrane to kind of support the kind of help supporting. If if you get a bit of run over, it stops the drain uh, from being exposed or the earth being washed away on, on either side. So that's kind of you know drainage is very important, folks. Um, Ella, the developer says, I think Chilton's plug doors are all unique. Yeah, I can believe it. Yeah, yeah. So, um. So that drainage system was completed in 2012, but only the section closest to the track. Um, so from catch pit 18 to the outfall. So this bit, just this little bit here, just this short section here, that's the only section which was listed on Network Rail's drain maintenance database at the time of the accident. RAIB has found no evidence that the drain upslope of catch pit 18 was inspected between its construction and the accident. This is already we are starting to see bad things here. The idea of, an, an, a, part of a part of the railway asset that is just utterly forgotten about from bad record keeping so um on the 13th of may 2020 so this is six months before uh, two members of network rail staff based at perth uh, depot carried out a drainage inspection in the carmen area using a handheld computer loaded with information from the drain maintenance database therefore not including the crest drain they inspected the drain down slope of uh, catch 18 and did not observe any faults they did not climb further up the steep gorse covered slope to seek additional catch pits um you know we can't it's not on them there necessarily you know you potentially say they could have been more curious but actually you know it, it, i've been in the condition where i'm inspecting uh, drainage in the situation where i'm inspecting drainage and it is hard work and it's it, and it's it's a real problem and you try and get as much desktop information as you can so I, I, yeah it's I, I can understand the situation where you're kind of looking at you doing a visual inspection to see if there's any obvious uh, material reaching that yeah uh, you know that that is what it is uh, so earthworks inspections. So th- th- there is an inspection of um, uh, kind of the area, the area of cutting. That that kind of the section of cutting in the area where the washout was was examined in June of the year of the derailment, and the inspection resulted in the slope being assigned a low to medium likelihood of failure, which is like that's basically as good as it gets. I think when it comes to GB earthworks, uh, is assigned an earthworks category ca- uh, hazard category of C on a scale of A to E. So it's kind of middling actually. The examiner, found, the examiner found no serious issues, such as water flowing over the top of the cutting. Um, a previous examination report recorded drain flowing freely based on the examiner seeing water flowing from the outfall at track level, so flowing from that outfall uh, into the into the kind of the natural drain going away from the railway that we saw earlier. Um, so, um, so that's that. So the, the track inspection. So let's have a look at what the track. So there was a there was a, a the section track where the derailment occurred had a planned inspection which was undertaken overnight. So on the night before the uh, the derailment, actually on the eleventh twelfth, by an infrastructure technician and a driver travelling slowly in a road rail vehicle. The inspection report stated that no actionable defects were found in the air of the accident. 
A track recording vehicle measured the track geometry through this area on the 21st of July 2020 and identified no faults. So one of the yellow trains went through and everything was fine. So, so it wasn't a specific track failure that was... So this is them kind of doing... Due, due, it's pretty obvious what's caused the derailment, but they're doing doing due diligence to ensure that actually there wasn't... You know, we're not missing a, something else happening. You know, maybe there was an underlying failure, but no, no, they're just pointing out that the track geometry appears to suggest that everything was fine. And there were some scour protection works at the base of the bridge, actually, with the tr- that the train travelled over. Um, uh, so actually, interestingly, there, those, the, 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 there was a construction team doing work at the time of the derailment, they actually ran out of the way as the train came through. And I think that gets discussed earlier. So let's have a look at this. So we're getting towards the the, the, the sequence of events now. Um, so I'm going to have another drink of, uh, of water, sorry, because my throat's going. I do have a bit of a cold at the moment. So um, there was heavy rainfall on uh, on the night, as we've talked about. Um, and it caused considerable damage to the railway across... Uh, there were there were major bits of railway closed already. So by 7am, the only major route in the central and eastern parts of the country which remained unaffected was Inverness, Aberdeen, Dundee. So already the central belt was in chaos. There were lots of problems. Uh, there were flooding, landslips, multiple failures. This, this is really important. They're trying to set the scene here. ScotRail, the, the ScotRail, the Scotland's railway team, so Network Rail and ScotRail in combination, were already in crisis mode. Lots of problems. There'd been a, the canal had burst its banks um, and closed the, the the Edinburgh Glasgow line near Polmont. Um, you know there were there were kind of uh, there's an incident a caravan park alongside the railway at Burnt Island that, that was causing issues in Fife. There were just lots of issues. I think that there's a diagram in a minute that shows it. Um, so in the morning of the of the the, the, the derailment, uh, so the twelfth of August, the first two southbound departures from Aberdeen um, left on time, passed through the Carmen area without incident. That was that was trains two B twelve and two B one two, two Bravo one two, and uh, uh, and uh, one Tango zero six, uh, which was redesignated as five Tango zero six as it ran without carrying passengers. So five t- Tango zero six ran to Dundee and um, was not expected to continue to Queen- Glasgow Queen Street, which is where it was supposed to be going. Um, the five forty six train from Aberdeen to Edinburgh, train one Bravo zero seven, was cancelled with railway records showing that this was because of heavy rain flooding the railway. So the next departure was train two Bravo one four, the six nineteen service to Montrose, which ran uh, normally to its destination. So the train involved in the accident, which is one Tango zero eight, was the six thirty eight hour service timetable to run from Aberdeen to Glasgow Queen Street. Because of the weather related problems south of Dundee, the train was expected to terminate at Dundee on the day of the accident. So the train departed from Aberdeen on time. It called at Stenhaven at six fifty three, and it passed Carmen's signal box. So it had been it was beyond the area of the accident, south of the signal box. Um, when it was stopped by a railway emergency call made by the signal using GSMR, um, which is the the on kind of the on train radio system that, that that's kind of fantastically useful, actually really valuable, powerful tool compared to past times. So so that was in response to a report of a landslip. Uh, which is going to get covered in a couple of paragraphs. The train stopped um, before that landslip, which was just north of Ironies Bridge, which is quite a bit further, like, quite a way south of Carmen. And it subsequently returned northwards. Um, because railway emergency calls are relayed to route control, the signaler's call also informed the route control manager about the Ironies Bridge landslip. So there you go. So this is a nice map showing all of these incidents kicking off all at once. Lots of problems going on, um, lots of issues, lots of, of of issues being managed by uh, by the team, the kind of the crisis management team, as well as everyone trying to keep things as close to business as usual as possible. 
So the first northbound train of the day to pass the accident site was train uh, 1 Hotel 25, uh, the 539 from Dundee to Inverness. Train passed Carmen at uh, 646, encountered floodwater at Newton Hill, um, uh, which was about 20 kilometres north of Carmen. Driver made a railway emergency call to the Aberdeen signaller um, using GSMR. The railway was closed at Newton Hill until the situation could be assessed by network rail staff on the ground. It continued to Aberdeen. So the next northbound train uh, was Montrose Inverurie, uh, 2 Bravo 1-3. Uh, I'm going to stop using train reporting numbers because I don't think it's that useful, in particularly in audio form, but I don't think it's that useful. So, so there's another northbound train, uh, the, the Montrose Inverurie train, via Aberdeen. Um, that train, travelling the downline, stopped adjacent to Carmen's signal box. The driver reported to the signaller that he'd seen a landslip affecting the upline at a location he identified as Blackbridge, but that was subsequently found to be a short distance away at Arnie's Bridge. So, so we already know about Arnie's Bridge from the southbound trains, right? Um, so they're kind of uh, a few, kilo- a couple of kilometres south of Carmen's signal box. Signal informed the driver of... of uh, so remember, our train that we're worrying about is 1 Tango 08. Uh, the the signal informed the driver of the train 1 Tango 08 about this landslip, uh, making the emergency call. Uh, the driver train 2B1, uh, 2 Bravo 13 reported the landslip to Carmen's signaller. Uh, that one kept going northwards towards Aberdeen, past the accident site at 7 7 hours. Uh, 0707 before reaching Stenhaven Haven at 713. It couldn't go any further because of the fact that the railway had been closed north of Stenhaven at Newton Hill. So the, the, that, that train was, was paused. The driver saw nothing unusual at the accident site, so the slip hadn't happened at that point. So the network rail uh, person arrived at Blackbridge, and the signaller provided them with protection from train movements, so, the, the, the kind of, so they, they were protected by... Uh, so they had a line blocked, presumably, by signals... Um, staff member went to investigate the landslip which had been reported um, he couldn't find the problem at that location walked north and found the landslide blocking the upline 550 metres away at the Ironies Bridge not Blackbridge and he could see one Tango 08 stationary a bit further north having stopped at so that train had stopped at Ironies Bridge he also found flooding affected the downline in the vicinity of Ironies Bridge and reported this to Lawrence Kirk Signaller, who's there further south, who informed route control at 850. Um, so, yeah, so the, the local signaller was able to basically signal protect the, this person doing their inspection. So the, to the south of this bridge where there'd been a problem, um, uh, the, the service from Perth to Inverurie, another train, had been held at Lawrence Kirk Station because of the flooding at Newton Hill. So actually the flooding further north of Stenhaven had paused that train so that, to avoid them kind of getting all clogged up. Yeah, this is to avoid the risk of stranding the train and its passengers in a remote location because of the station being occupied. That makes good sense. It's good practice to stop trains where they can, people can get off the train um, if possible. Um, at 8.28 hours, the driver of that train was advised by route control via the Lawrence Kirk signaller. Um, yeah, the driver of that train uh, the, because of route blockages further north, the train was to be terminated at Lawrence Kirk. The train was redesignated, um, crossed to another li- tr- crossed to the other line, and then departed southwards from Lawrence Kirk Station. Okay, so far everything sort of seems okay. It's crisis mode, but everything seems fairly sensible. Um, so let me just remind myself where we are. So after travelling about seven hundred thirty meters, the driver of that train stopped on seeing a landslip ahead. Um, so let me see. So the so this is I've got to make sure I get my um so that's so this is driver one Z four three. So they're um yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're heading this is it, this is where it's fiddly. You've got to kind of get heads and take make sure that you've got it right of what trains are going where. So that train was going um uh 
that train was going northwards has now turned into a southbound train. So that's heading southwards from Lawrence Kirk. And it's now stopped at another uh, failure. Um, so that's that. So that train, which was kind of redesignated, stopped at seeing a landslide further south, south of Lawrence Kirk. Uh, the driver informed Lawrence Kirk signaling passed this information and the information about the Ironies uh, landslip to route control at 850. This meant that route control staff were now aware of two landslips and two flooding events in that section between Lawrence Kirk and Newton Hill, in addition to all the chaos going on elsewhere. So this is already two train-blocking block landslides trapping a load of trains on this bit of railway line. So, so you can see that there are problems occurring. And given all these... Uh, this is the point where you realise that, OK, there was a landslide, but this is starting to look... They're all, they're all, you know, there are already starting to be issues here, Um there's already a bit of a bit of you know there, there's a lot of chaos happening in a very small space of railway a very restricted railway you know lots of sections of single track you can't just pass trains past each other there's a lot that the signalers having to think about to make sure they don't just trap trains you know deadlock trains so they can't there are lots of things having to think about so there's a lot of stuff going on here um so at this point yeah we can see the situation you've got the you've got a train here being held um due to a tra train one train being held due to the landslip you've got the train that you know the, the current derailment train being held um, south of the current derailment point um, at, at current signal box. You've got uh, two Bravo One Three being held due to flooding at Stonehaven, facing northwards. So you've got train. You've got uh, a train heading facing southwards, um, further further south. You've got the tra our, kind of the train in question facing southwards at the moment, and then you've got two Bravo One Three facing northwards. All of these trapped by by three different weather events trapping these trains in place, but two landslides within our bit of railway here. Is everyone following? Um, is this all... I, I don't know to what extent this is useful. Um, oh, Ella, the developers asked what scour protection is. Scour protection um, is where you ensure that the, a river or a stream is not washing away the foundations of a bridge. So whether it's the, 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 the kind of the, the pier the pier in the middle or intermediate piers or the, or the abutments, making sure that your, your structure is not getting undermined by water flow. Um, sorry, brief digression. Um, so, as train uh, 1 Tango 08, so our train was unable to proceed south beyond Ironies Bridge, as we've established, there was a concern about passengers being stranded, rightly so. A member of route control staff called the Carmen signaler and asked them to arrange with the signaler at Stonehaven for this train, the, the, our, the, the 1 Tango 08, our, our train, to return to Stonehaven. This movement involved the train crossing from the upline to the downline at Carmen, because there's a crossover next to the signal box there. Um, so moving over that crossover, um, and uh, let's see. So, so there's there's some because this train this crossover wasn't equipped with facing point locks, uh, which secures points in position. So it needed to be. So the rulebook required that it got clamped and scotched um, before the the train could kind of pass through it. Um, so the so the network rail uh, mobile operations manager the mom uh, was tasked with with travelling to Carmel to do that. So the mom arrived at um, arrived at eight fifty five. By nine seventeen, the the necessary clamps and scotches had been fit to the crossovers. So this meant that um, so there was a train at at uh, the train at Stonehaven had been uh, all the passengers had got had were being prepared to get off there so that that train could move out of the platform to make room for one Tango 08. Ah, okay, so they, they basically got all the tra passengers off 
2 Bravo 1-3, which was the one facing northwards, stuck at Stonehaven. So they could just basically trundle it out of the way, just run up to the next signal, but without stranding passengers. So the passengers were all kind of at at Stonehaven being taken uh, somewhere, presumably not great numbers at this point, being taken somewhere safe. Um. So that, with the logic that the that, that one ta- that our train could then pull into Stonehaven at the platform and, and passengers could get off. So um, by so by nine twenty nine, the heavy rain had stopped and the sun was shining at Carmen's signal box. So, um, not that I want to kind of to put your mind in that those circumstances. It feels like you, know, you okay. Some arrangements have been made. So that train is perhaps is that okay? We've kind of made those arrangements. We've had these landslips. We've we've identified multiple issues already. But we've kind of got the arrangements ready to send that train up, get those passengers off uh, warm and safe, um, if needs be. Okay, so let's um, basically. Okay, so right, the, the weather's improving. Right, okay, maybe we're going to get this crisis. Maybe is going to going to be moved through. So, uh, and it's worth. I know. I know we're going through time, but I think it's worth looking at this in looking at this in detail because the the sequence of events is is critical i think i think it's important to understand the operational reasons why things were happening um so at uh, at 929 the carment signal used gsmr to uh, speak to the driver of train one tango zero eight our train standing between the signal box and Arnie's bridge the signaler authorized the train to return north on the up line as far as carment so that's kind of a wrong side move um uh, but the signal is authorised it, it's protected uh, as such, the signal knows what's going on. Uh, traverse the, cross, the crossover, then proceed north towards Stonehaven on the down line. So on the on the correct line for going northwards, um, having gone over the crossover. The signal advised the driver to traverse the crossover at five miles per hour and said that everything was then fine to Stonehaven so the train could run at normal speed to there. I think that's a key that's a key moment in the in the in the situation. Is that in reality the driver, you know, the the driver, the signaler, yeah, we'll 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 move on to the discussion of what of whether that was the right advice, whether the driver should still be moving at caution. We've got a driver, Jordan's here. Jordan, what's your perception of that? Would would you is your perception? What does the rule book say? You know, should given the circumstances there, uh, you know, is it? And this is not pointing any right or wrong at Brett the drive at Brett uh, McCulloch the driver. By the way, this is merely you know. The instruct what happened is is sort of you know, laid out in front. This is not a, a blame situation, and the issue is more you know what's what are the things what is the rulebook saying? What is what's what is your perception in that situation? So Jordan, I'd be interested to know what what your thoughts are about um uh, about that about that situation. Um, so um so let's see. So and there's there's lots of good discussion going on in there. Uh, I, I see. Uh, yeah, Chris Jackson's wondering why there wasn't a set of clamps kept in carment box in case of need rather than wait till the moment arrived. Yeah, that's 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 not an unreasonable question actually. I I don't know. Um I don't know. So as the signal was not aware of any obstruction of the line, railway rules did not require him to instruct the driver to start travel at a speed slower than the maximum normally permitted. If aware of a possible obstruction or other potential problem, a signal should instruct the driver to proceed at caution at a speed which will allow the train to be stopped short of any obstruction. So, it is what this is not a should they shouldn't they? That's the situation. This is what happened. The driver then asked the signal whether train one Tango zero eight would be held at Stonehaven. The signal confirmed that this was the case because the line was blocked beyond Stonehaven. The signaler gave the driver permission to make the move over the crossover. The driver repeated back the instruction to confirm that he's understood it. Yes, I know I'm reading out the report, but hopefully I'm perhaps annotating in a way that makes it additionally useful other than just reading it. So the train moves through the crossover at, at very low speed. Once the driver is through the crossover, aware that the train's through the crossover, um, 
the the speed increase you know, the driver increased the speed um towards the the maximum permissible speed which was 75 miles an hour for this bit of line um and so the driver is accelerating at this point um so now we reach kind of the process of the derailment so again i just want to say this this is is potentially upsetting for people but i think by the if you're still with us at this point then then i'll press on so in the area of Bridge 325, which is the bridge in question, uh, north of Carmen, heavy rain between 550 hours and 0900 hours on the on, on the morning of uh, kind of in question resulted in gravel from this crest drain we've been talking about, together with stones and soil eroded from the surrounding ground, they got washed out onto the track. So this debris um, covered the downline uh, just short of the bridge, and the precise time which this occurred is not known, but it must have been between... 7.07 hours when the last train before the accident passed the location until the arrival of the train at about um, 9.37 hours. So that's two and a half hours window, a two and a half hour window for this to have happened. Um, data from the on-train data recorder, you know, the black box, if you like, fitted to the trailing power car shows that the train was traveling about 73 miles an hour, which was less than the maximum permitted speed as it approached the washout debris. Bear in mind, the driver at this point has no reason to, okay, they're aware that there are issues, but Broadly, if they've been instructed by the signal that the line is that the line is clear and unobstructed, absolutely right to take that on good faith. And there's no reason you know they're they're on the right side of the railway. They're driving the train. Everything is essentially normal between the, you know ahead of them to up to Stenhaven. They they're aware of the train movements. The signal is already discussed with them. There's no reason to not be following the the rules of uh, you know the rules in front of them. Um. So um, let me see. So. Let's have a look. Ah, yeah. Roaming Anticrap points out signalers don't have PTS or personal track safety certification routinely, so they can't clamp, clamp points themselves. So the, the mom would have to arrive anyway. Yeah, that, that's a fairly good description. And actually, if the mom, then it means that the, the mom is always aware that their kit is maintained. Whereas if it's in the signal box and not used for twenty years, then it's not unreliable. Yeah. So, um, Jordan Jack. Yeah. So so Jordan Jack is just adding. I think worth add, uh, reading out what Jordan said. So in normal circumstances, we proceed at line speed uh, and, unless we're instructed otherwise. Considering the situation, Brett was instructed to proceed. Someone's out. Signal did not indicate there was a reason to proceed at caution, so he proceeded as instructed. It's a difficult situation because the sun was out at this point. Other trains have passed. No issue. Absolutely. I think it's important to get in the psychology. The crisis at this point feel this. The, the combination of the fact that it, the, the instructions about right, you're going to pull into Stonehaven where we'll we'll sort the issue situation out. The sun coming out, which feels like the, the issue is drawn to a close. There's there's a general feeling that that everything's towards the end of the crisis locally. That the, kind of the situation's been resolved. You would you it, it, I I would to my mind pretty reasonable as a driver to then expect ah they've they've kind of resolved these issues. Let's let's get crack you know let's get these passengers back where we need to like if i dither around i'm exasperating some of the, the issues you know other challenges so let's let's get the passengers back to stonehaven where they can you know i'm taking them the wrong direction already anyway um you know their their well-being is important to me as a driver i, I can imagine that's the sort of things going through into your head um jordan jacks is essentially work to instruction yeah having been in the cab in i've been in a hst cab actually and had, having been in the cab um going down to doncaster and back up it's abundantly clear to me and it's not like drivers are um, entirely, you know, it's not like drivers are powerless. That's not what I'm saying. But it's, it's abundantly clear to me that there is an there is a bond of trust between driver, signaller, and and infrastructure. In, you know, with all the people that that means. You know, there is an absolute accepted bond of trust that exists there, 
And, and you know, my first thing that I experienced sat in the cab of a train was a class 158 heading straight towards me and then diverting on a crossover into the platform next to me in York. And that immediately from that, I realized that that trust immediately. And, and then the driver, the fantastic driver, LNER driver had explained to me as I was going south that this is the point where if I don't apply an emergency brake, we're on the we're, we're straddling uh colton junction in the wrong direction if it's been set incorrectly this is the point and i couldn't see colton junction you know we were miles you know several miles a couple of miles from it for me that was something that so so there is a that that bond of trust is and i have to say with the bridge parapet failure and with issues happening elsewhere i think that bond of trust has been shaken a little bit on this line of late um anyway sorry i think it's interesting and important to kind of make that point uh, Jordan, thanks so much for kind of that, that discussion. Really, really valuable insights there. Um, so, so let's have, so so let me now read this through. So, so the the, the train is travelling at seventy five miles an hour as it approached the washout debris. The left hand curve on the approach obstructed the driver's view of the debris until the train was about one hundred and twenty meters from it. The train covered this distance in less than four seconds. It's one hundred twenty meters, four seconds. Although the on train. Um, data recorder records an application of the emergency brake. There was insufficient time for this to have had any significant effect on the train's speed before it struck the debris. It's worth saying that the, the brake applications, uh, and again, Jordan can infinitely more knowledgeable than me about this, a brake application, particularly at high speeds, it takes it's a bit of time before you're getting an effect. The momentum takes a little bit of time to drop away. Um, so, uh, things don't go well from this point. So, the leading power car uh, struck the debris. So, so it struck the debris basically at, at 73 miles an hour, derailed to the left. Its leading end progressively deviated towards the cess. So that's the the kind of the, 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 to the side of the track as the track curved to the right. And it continued running derailed for around 60 meters until it struck a section of bridge parapet. After destroying more than half the parapet, the power car fell off the bridge and down onto a wooded embankment below, and the driver's cab became detached on impact with the ground. Three of the following five vehicles uh, travelled in different directions beyond the bridge. Um, so there's a figure which will explain this. The first passenger coach came to rest on its roof, almost at right angles to the track. The second passenger coach came to rest overturned onto its roof with its... Uh, trailing uh, end on the top of the first coach so that the, the coach that we've seen already in images squashed flat and almost perpendicular to the track was the first coach second coach came to rest up, upside down um with its trailing end on top of the first coach and facing the direction of travel the third uh, passenger coach ran down the steep embankment to the left side of the railway and came to rest on its right hand side the fourth passenger coach the, the trailing coach the last coach remained upright and came to rest with its leading end on top of the first coach the trailing power car remained upright on the downline, still coupled to the rear of the fourth coach. And the behaviour of the train and the derailment and the damage it sustained are, are, are described in more detail in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, about 10 or 20 paragraphs. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll obviously go through that. So, what happened next? You know, the, the, the response to an incident is absolutely uh, critical to, uh, to how quickly you can get in there and, and start looking after people, helping people who are injured or, or worse. Uh, so, I'm going to pause here after that description um uh ella developer the short hsts have uh slightly strange brakes i'm not sure about that to be honest ella I, I don't know actually um josh light school is asking about eddy current braking um for emergency braking possibly but not it would have made no uh, given the speeds involved that was, still would have made no difference to the I, I don't think it would have made any difference to the rate of, of deceleration to be honest um 
So I often hear people criticize the principle of root familiarization, but I think what Gareth Dennis just said about um, emergency brakes proves how essential it is. Absolutely. Energy is fitted, scales with the speed, so yeah. Um, uh, also, the untrained uh, data recorders have accelerometers to work out what happens in situations like this. I don't think they do. I don't think they do. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, Romy Adkar is absolutely right. There's no uh, braking at this point when you've got very 120 meters at 73 miles an hour, very little time to, for brakes to make any difference. The, the, the speed drop happens at the end of a braking cycle, not in the early parts where you know, you, you'd lose very little. Um, uh, yeah, not necessarily. Um, uh, Ella, you're right. Uh, can you know uh, any current braking can, can actually just wreck up the track. Um, so um, here we are. So let's have a look. So the first moment, yeah. It, sorry, James P is just making my case, but worded better, which is about energy dissipated, which scales with the square of the speed. So brakes generally scrub energy at a constant rate. So a constant rate of energy scrubbing, energy dissipation, which means that the first moments see the least velocity loss. Thank you, James P. You put that very well. Uh, and Jordan Jack again. This is going to be very insightful. So there is a there's a delay to brake application. If Brett saw the obstruction and immediately applied the emergency brake, I wouldn't be sure any meaningful brake force would be applied yet. Um, Michael C. Does the fact that there are multiple landslips suggest a lack of adequate maintenance on the whole line? Any one of these landslips could have been a disaster if undetected. Yeah, that's something we're going to come to, I think. Um, I don't want to cast aspersions again on the, you know, network rail is always resource stripped. I don't want to cast aspersions on the root asset manager at the time, the Earthworks uh, asset manager. So I don't want to cast uh, that sort of a claim. But, you know, given that the... I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that potentially this line has not had enough maintenance, given the the fact that you had a parapet failure more recently on a bridge further, just the next bridge up from this bridge, I think bridge 326. So, um, ah, Jordan Jack saying, HST on train, um, yeah, the, the black box in an HST is not as, as, as good as modern trains, not as detailed. So it sounds like modern trains do have that sort of information, but the old ones don't. Yeah, that's interesting, okay. Um, so... Events after the accident. So this has happened, and we're going to get more detail on the behaviour of the train in a moment, but the contractors working on the scar protection project had a small team on site to protect plant and equipment from rising water levels because they were you know, they were looking at what was happening with the, the stream, the current water. Two people were standing by the river when they heard, a, and this is a quote, a loud rumbling noise from above and ran as the derailed vehicles fell down the embankment. I mean, bloody hell. The contractor's supervisor made a 999 call about 9.37. That will have been... I, I have no doubt that the contractors will have been called... That they'll have been running out of the way, and I doubt they'll have stood for very long before getting their phones out. You know, They'll, they'll have been shocked. They'll have been trauma of, of seeing what they just witnessed. But I think the best of us is when... you know, I, I, I'd be willing to say that a lot of people... The people I, the, the industry I know, the people I work on the railway that I know, and also all evidence of what happens generally on the railway in previous instances is that people react very quickly. People are very good at reacting well in a crisis. Very few people don't respond well in a crisis. That they, you can go through all the crash reports. I've read hundreds of crash reports. Certainly, you know, literally hundreds, actually. I know, I, did, I, count, I know the numbers from my thesis, which I read 160 from my thesis, and I've read more since. And people respond well in a crisis as a rule. I don't think that's an unreasonable rule to make. I don't think it's a stretch. People respond well in a crisis. Um, we're already at 2050, by the way. I'm sorry this is going on long, but I think it's important. Um, so, so, so they pretty. So, I imagine that the incident will have happened, you know, 30 seconds a minute before, and and very. Little. So, so 9:37 is when when it would have happened. Police Scotland, 9:43. Police Scotland advised route control of a report of a train off the track. So, 
six minutes later, so presumably during through the they'll have collected the information from the call and then they'll have made so they'll have collected all the information they need. They'll have then reported it through to uh, root control. This message was passed to the signal at Stonehaven, who in turn called the Carmen signal at nine forty eight. So ten minutes later, um, signal stopped all further train movements. Um, uh, and network rail staff, including the mom had been at Carmen Signal Box, reached the site of the accident approximately approximately nine fifty five. So was that about a quarter of an hour later, not 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 a long time uh later. The emergency services started uh okay, maybe maybe a little longer than that, so nearly twenty minutes. The the emergency services started to arrive about uh, quarter past ten, so that's half an hour later the emergency services arrived. Um at quarter past, yeah, so a conductor who had been travelling to Dundee as a passenger on the train phoned Carmen Signalbox from a line-side telephone, having walked down the line from the site of the accident. So this is the, 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 so it, you know, the only staff member on that train who had survived the, the derailment, by the way, that what they were doing was immediately going to protect the train to the best of their ability. They, they, they were making their way to protect, the, to protect the, what was left of the train. Uh, which I think is always worth noting. So, so this diagram sort of shows the the behavior, you know, where the train pieces of the train end up. But I think I've explained that already. And um, the scar protection contractors' staff provided initial assistance to the injured people on the train. Uh, they also used a small excavator that was on site to move a portable fuel tank away from the scene, to put water on on one of the fires, um, and place a timber mat across the river to make a temporary bridge. So already these, so I think absolute credit to these these the staff who were just on site just just chaps on site just doing physical work on the railway you know um they they were using an excavator to put so so they put water on one of the fires they were you know putting out the fires they were placing a timber mat to allow people to get access more easily immediately for uh, at local residents were responding providing assistance to injured people in the emergency service during the first few hours after the drill the emergency services established their presence on site removed the injured people to hospital and extinguished the fire in coach b so the next bit I'm going to skip over because it's just really a description of the the RAIB investigation, the challenges. I will kind of keep keep my eye on it just in case there is anything. So there's a description of how long it took to take the the last vehicles off. That was that happened in um, late uh, kind of mid to late September, which is uh, you know it's quite a long time after the derailment, in honesty. Uh, and then it took another. You know, it was then November before the 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 line was uh, reopened, uh, and the new drainage had been installed before that. Rightly so, to make the make the railway safe, the infra- infrastructure safe. Um. So the, the the immediate cause of the derailment is the is the fact the train derailed after colliding with stones washed onto the track from the gravel-filled crest drain. That's understood. Post accident service of the track found no evidence suggesting the derailment occurred on the approach to the debris on the track. And verified pre-accident inspections, which had found no track defects in the area. Yep. So basically, the RAB has not found any evidence of a train fault that could have played a part in this drill. So, track and train, track specifically and train were not the reason for this derailment. The first evidence that the train wheels had deviated from the rails was identified less than one meter beyond the point where the left-hand rail emerged from beneath the debris. The top surface of the rail was scored by the flange of the leading um, left-hand wheel. So the the that's the sort of, you know, the thin part of the wheel, uh, the, the kind of the curve of the wheel shape. Um, and uh, there we are. So the first evidence that, uh, yeah, so that, to be honest, so Ella, you just, could they go onto the, the rear cab and use the big red button, which stops everything in, in, in the cab? I, I don't know whether maybe they did do that, but um, uh, I think, yeah, I think the, the, I, I think that might well have happened anyway, and the, and the conductor was, was, it was basically doing due diligence to just go and, and, and do everything they could to protect the train. I, I presume they, 
it might well be that they the contract just ran up. They had a discussion. The contract said, you know, you you, you or I don't know exactly know what that course of action is, but I, I would assume that that would have been kind of done already, or it might have been an assumption that that was too risky because of the you know the, the lack of potential signal from GSM in this particular spot, the risk of it being a blind spot. I don't know, but um, going along the track to phone the signal feels, you know, I can understand why that you know, the severity was, and also they couldn't pressing the red button is a delay to the emergency services arriving because that's just a red button. It doesn't say anything about what's happened. So I think maybe they just went as quickly as they could. Um, yeah, I, I don't exactly know what happened there, but that might well be made clear in the final investigation after they've got testimony of, of, of the people who you know, survived the, the incident. Um, so the the washout was caused by the unusually heavy rain, which washed out the gravel and, and so on. And so so surface water... So basically they're saying that yeah, leave it. So that this this gravel filled crest drain, the gravel was washed up out of there. Um, yeah, so the the local ground topographer directed large amounts of surface water onto the steeply sloping drain in the area from which the gravel was washed out. So, it's not the gravel and the the shallow crest drain. It's more the that steep section. The water was being channeled from on the hill. All the water was being channeled into that point, and actually the speed of water, the flow of water, washed out that the crest drain being applied on a steeper slope perhaps where it shouldn't be i don't know perhaps where it shouldn't have been the color and shape of the drain fill as evidenced by the gravel remaining in the drain differed from stones naturally occurring in the surrounding area represent a significant portion proportion of the debris on track um <coughs> excuse me so you can see here uh, there's the drain with the gravel washed out so let's, let's zoom in on that a bit so you can see um see here this is the crest drain. The gravel is just entirely washed out. It's just gone. Um, you can see uh, absence of gravel has been washed from the trench. Presence of locally occurring natural stones washed from the ground around the trench. So these stones have been washed into this trench. Um, the uh, And you can see here that there's the exposed plastic kind of perforated drainage pipe. And you can see all the, the specifically gravel. It's almost ballast coloured. That's the material that's been washed out of that drain. Um, it's possible that surface water flows before the day of the accident had been sufficient to dislodge gravel from small areas of the gravel-filled drain, sufficient to be seen in the area affected, but with insufficient material washed down for this to be apparent at track level. The lack of an effective drainage inspection regime meant that any such indications of future problems upslope of catch pit 18, so upslope of the bit that had been looked at that was parallel to the track, would not have been detected. Right, this bit is I'm kind of acutely conscious of... T I mean, it is important that we go through this time-wise. I know that people are saying, don't worry about the time. It's important to go through this. It's, 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 it's relevant. Um, this section is about the procedures for managing trains in extreme weather. And actually, this gets quite, this gets quite complicated. So I am going to... I don't think it's... I mean, it's worth picking through yourselves, but I'm not going to go through it in great detail. It talks about the area, the kind of the areas of, of, of the management areas for, for weather forecast... Oh, so there's areas for weather forecasting. Those relate to ma hazard management areas. Um, there's there's a lot of stuff about uh, calling... So there's stuff about the processes by which you could call, um, you know, whether to call this EWAT, which is an extreme weather action teleconference. So essentially saying that this is serious. There are serious challenges that we need to crisis manage this very carefully. Um, it's unlikely that that would have avoided the accident anyway. Um, so it's worth noting, though, that at the time of the accident, Network Rail had no formal procedure requiring an immediate review of operating restrictions after the occurrence of multiple weather-related events. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, I'm coughing down there. I'm, I'm doing an Alice and coughing down the, uh, down the mic. Sorry, everyone. Uh, it's fine. That's character, right?
I do have a bit of a cough at the moment anyway. Uh, I've also had a coronavirus test, so it's not that. So that's critical. There is no formal procedure. So if you've had multiple land slips, no proceed, there, is no procedure, there was no procedure existing going, right, we've had multiple land slips. This is a, we need to take, everything needs to be travelling at caution on this line. That's a problem, actually. It's a mistake, and hopefully it's something we are going to learn. Already we've changed that. That has now been changed, by the way. So this is now, we're going to look at the detail of the derailment. So this is the derailment in, in more precise detail. Again, this is this might be uncomfortable uh, listening. When the train struck the washout debris, the leading bogey, the leading power car derailed to the left side of the track, followed by the trailing bogey within a few metres. The leading bogey progressively drifted towards the cess as it approached the bridge. None of the following vehicles appear to have derailed at the landslip. So, by, uh, so it's, the landslip only derailed the power car. Everything else was derailed by the behaviour of the train after that landslide. Basically, the power car had already created, probably created a, 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 a flangeway gap for the train to pass over, or you know, or the lighter vehicles weren't weren't actually derailed by it. So, none of the following vehicles appeared to derail the landslip. By the time the power car reached the bridge, its leading end was displaced so far to the left that it struck the bridge parapet, demolishing it, and as a result, deviating even further to the left of the track. This is why I was talking about derailed vehicle retention earlier. Near the middle of the bridge, the leading power car became detached from the first passenger coach. During the detachment, the first passenger coach climbed over the trailing right-hand side of the power car, which caused substantial structural damage to the vehicle ends involved in this interaction. The power car then fell off the bridge and down onto the embankment below. The leading bogey of the first passenger coach followed the leading power car onto the embankment. <clears throat> The first passenger coach and following vehicles continued over and beyond the bridge. The first three coaches then jackknifed in sequence, each becoming uncoupled from the adjoining vehicles, shedding all of their bogies and rotating in different directions in the horizontal plane. The first passenger coach rotated to the left and came to rest on its roof and almost at right angles to the track. The second coach rotated to the right, ran through some trees and collided with the bank on the cess side of the upline. Uh, it then spun round further and came to rest upside down, having rotated almost 180 degrees, so its trailing end was on top of coach D. Yeah. The third coach rotated to the left, ran down the steep embankment and came to rest on its right-hand side at an angle of 130 degrees to the track. The fourth coach uh, continued upright on its bogies until it struck debris from the other vehicles near coach D and was lifted up and to the left of the track, coming to rest on top of the leading end of Coach D. The trailing end of Coach A remained coupled to the trailing power car, which stayed upright. So you know, you've seen the pictures. We've already looked at those. The, 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 the trailing vehicle, the two trailing vehicles, the, the last coach and the, and the last power car were still connected to each other. Um, <clears throat> so uh, as a result of the derailment and damage to the vehicles, the train driver, so we, we've already established the train driver, and the, uh, the conductor in coach D, so that, that first coach, and a passenger in coach C all suffered fatal injuries. The six other occupants of the train suffered injuries, some serious. The leading power car and all four passenger coaches suffered substantial damage with the extent of the damage reducing progressively towards the rear of the train. On the leading power car, the driver's cab became completely detached when the vehicle collided with the bank, and the roof, right-hand body side, trailing end bogies, and underframe were substantially damaged. The first passenger coach, Coach D, suffered severe damage to the leading vestibule roof and body sides over the leading half of the vehicle, which resulted in significant loss of survival space in that area. That's that's you know the the, the kind of the cube shape within a coach that you should have for people to be safe within. That's called survival space. The collapsed roof and body sides also caused substantial disruption to the interior furniture, light fittings, and trim panels in that area. But the seats and tables remained attached. Almost all the windows in the leading half of the vehicle were broken through. 
the second coach sustained damage to the leading vestibule and localized penetration damage to the trailing left-hand side. So this is talking about substantial. You can see the dents in that in that coach that rolled down the side, most likely as a result of impacts with detached bogies. This is why I'm reading this in detail. It's because it paints the picture of some of the reasons why crashworthiness are important. I hope you don't think it's gratuitous. I think it's important to read it. You, you can understand why you know, the physics, all this stuff is happening within seconds. So the physics involved, the, the energy involved is immense. So any objects, any behaviors are result in, in damage, result in huge force being imparted on the vehicles, which is why they should be up to standard to cope with them. We don't have an excuse to, to, to really submitting these vehicles you know, in a derailment. There are lots of you know, Ideally, we don't have derailment at all, but if we do, we should be protecting people. Um, so penetration of the trailing right-hand side, uh, again, bogey-related. Four windows smashed through. Windows smashing through means the potential to eject passengers, which is very bad. Um, uh, you know, it's, 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 that's it's a, a, absolutely critically a, a situation to avoid happening. The coach retained its survival space, uh, and the interior furniture remained in place, except within a localised area at the trailing end, where the seats are being pushed into the aisle by damage to the left-hand body side. Third coach sustained substantial damage to the right-hand body side. This is the one that rolled over and almost jacked and totally rotated itself. Um, some damage to the leading vestibule. All the windows on the right-hand side, and most of those on the left-hand side were broken through. Again, it's probably because it's been compressed and, and had objects striking it. Um, this is Coach... Ah, sorry, forgive me. Coach C is the one that rotated. Coach B is the one that went down the down the embankment. Forgive me. Um, all the windows on the right-hand side broke... Yeah, so this coach later caught fire, which resulted in most of the vehicle's interior being, um, being burnt. Um, yeah, so this happened later. The fourth coach suffered substantial damage to the leading vestibule and localised damage to both, both body sides, and the leading bogey pivot and underframe equipment were severely damaged. Several windows shattered but not broken through. The interior remained intact, and then the trailing power car did not suffer any significant damage. Uh, evidence from witnesses as well as on-train CCTV shows that the leading power car was visibly on fire immediately after it came to rest. The likely cause of the fire was the spillage of diesel fuel from the ruptured fuel tank. Um, coach B subsequently caught, caught fire. Witnesses state that Coach B was not visibly on fire until well after the emergency services had arrived. Um, witness evidence specifically mentions the fire on Coach B as being near the battery compartment. No one was in Coach B at the time of the accident. No one was injured as a result of either fire. So I'm not going to go into... Well, maybe it is worth reassuring people that a lot of there have been changes to guidance as a result immediately after the accident. There were changes to guidance. You know, within Within a week, there have been changes to guidance. Um, so there are so there's there's quite a lot in there that um, uh, that, that kind of yeah the, 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 I think there's detail that explains that there's some expert review committees too one about weather and what one about one about climate and one about sorry one about weather and one about earthworks uh, the two responses so um, this is the bit that is is kind of key and interesting to to explore I know this has gone on I'm, I'm, I think it's worth it's it was worth going through that explanation I think. Um, so uh, the area is basically, this is the key bit, is the area is being considered by the RAIB. So, so there are kind of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, um, ten different sort of areas they're looking at. The first is the response of the railway to severe weather events and weather-related infrastructure failures. I, I don't think that requires any further explanation. That That's happening. It's ongoing. Hopefully we'll be able to speak to people on future rail matters about that. The competence and training of operational staff to deal effectively with such events yeah, again, same sort of thing. Uh, the railway's management systems and decision-making processes at times of widespread disruption caused by severe weather and or multiple instances of infrastructure failure. Again, these are operational. Clearly, lessons need to be learned related to this. There were, there was, you, you could, I think it can be quite reasonably argued that 
I think the whole railway as a, broadly was too eager to let that train go north without checking that things had gone wrong. I think that's that's clearly a consequence. Where, who, you know, what processes resulted in that happening? It's not about per- personal fault. It's about process problems that result in that being able to happen. I think the reason I tried to describe where people were at in their heads during the situation is because I don't think you can blame, place that in, blame on individuals. I think that that's a process, a system uh, failure. Uh, the railways use of weather data to help it manage events. So yeah, I think that's that's a key one. Data is is our ally in in, in understanding this stuff. You know, can we have remote condition monitoring where we where we've got earthworks that are at risk? Um, the drainage system at Carment. This is this is obviously has got more bullet points associated with it. So this is looking at the actual behaviour of the drainage system, comparison of, of what it was whether it was planned did what it was planned to do. So this is critical for permanent engineers, for civil engineers, drainage design. This is this is key raising uh, raising eyebrows about the design of drainage. It, do we design drainage properly? Um, the validation and approval of the drain design methodology, design data, design output. So that's that's key for my fellow consultants. That's the critical output we'll be paying attention to. Hopefully, we're already uh, looking inwards and understanding if drainage design is done right. The way in which the drain was constructed, so then the construction of that drain, whether it, the, whether the, the design was right, was it then built right? And then the intended and actual post-construction inspection process. So having been built, was it checked and inspected properly? Well, we've already understood, no, it wasn't, because it, was, it didn't find its way onto an asset register. So this is then perhaps something that I, having talked about crashworthiness, will be paying particular attention to, and I hope that the RIB do not pull their punches as they might have done in the past. Uh, the causes of the fires. I've, I know there have been some questions about fires. Um, uh, possible effects of fire on the way in which the windows broke, which is, that's that's an interesting one. Uh, causes on, uh, of the injuries sustained by people on the train. So that's, you know, that's always something that, that that's not particular to this instance. That's just always something they do. They understand why each individual injury, they look at why that's happened because each individual injury, each individual series of injuries that a person has, has suffered allows us to learn a lot about where we can make improvements. So um, it's it's not, you know, it's the crash. This is a key one. Crash awareness of, well, it says broadly of rail vehicles in high energy accidents. The performance of devices fitted on trains to displace obstacles on track. Um, yep, whether the whether more modern obstacle deflectors could have resulted in the train remaining on on track and avoiding the incident altogether, devices to mitigate risk in the event of derailments at high risk locations. This last one is really about guardrails. That's that's what that one's talking about. So it's not about the vehicle, but it's about the infrastructure on the track. Uh, the next is about climate change, the likely effect of climate change on the type of weather event that caused this accident and its relevance to the future management of railway drainage. That's a big one as well. I know I talked a lot about that in interviews afterwards. It felt like a very obvious issue that the railways, it's not obvious, I'd written already about it. It's an acknowledged issue in the railway that we are increasingly having to deal with these issues. And then some of the underlying management factors, development validation of standards related to risk management, uh, that the railway industry's responses to previous recommendations from the RAIB and recommendations, general recommendations for the improvement of railway safety. Well, they always generally stick that one in. So that's that's the report. That is the report right there. And so as I put that picture up and, and bring OBS back so I can see what I'm doing, um, I hope that was... There, there's some questions. So David Shepard asks, can slopes next to railways be cut back to remove the risk of landslips onto the line? That does happen, but it usually happens... It can happen in advance, but generally you, you that's a major bit of civil engineering work. It does happen. That that does happen. But you'll generally... Uh, more often than not, you'll see that after, after a failure <coughs> rather than to avoid one. Reactive rather than proactive. Um... So Owen O'Neill, primary versus secondary measures. Uh, what would be better, safety return investment, replacing rolling stock or ETCS with ATO to prevent spad and overspeed? Well, this is certainly a thing to consider, but ultimately um, I think 
pursue all of the above is the right the right response um chris jackson shinkansen train sets are being fitted with additional guard iron specifically to engage with the extra guard rails that's interesting um so yeah so so there's there's a lot to, there's a lot to process i think we're, there'll be another episode of this where we process this in more detail and we look at the report and i'll say less at the start because i spoke for an hour before breaking into the report i should have seen that coming really shouldn't i um we'll pick into the report only and understand what the outputs are but i think that the critical thing i think the key thing for me to communicate sorry is um the hst should no longer be in, in regular service like that's that's for me that's the takeaway this that's the key thing that it's the performance is not good enough anymore um i think also it's worth it's worth actually spending a, it's actually worth remembering the three people who died in the incident brett mcculloch donald dinney and, and christopher stuckbury um they, you know, they. We've we talked about this. We, while we we talk about the incidents and what we can learn, you mustn't. We, we cannot forget the human tragedy involved. You know, Brett was a father, kids. You know, it's it's not. We cannot lose sight of the of the human tragedy involved in these sorts of incidents. But hopefully, hopefully, the episode today has um, been useful in in kind of uh, maybe for some of you who haven't looked at crash reports, maybe that's um, it. Kind of shows you the insights that you get from the the kind of the modern modern crash reports, and indeed preceding privatization the br reports are generally pretty good at, at picking out learning for the industry as well um and i think that's that's it really i think we're going to kind of move into the next um move into the end of the episode so i, I don't know hopefully that's a long one in audio form the podcasts are back up i think uh heels <coughs> heels computer is working again so the podcast should be should be dropping back in again so hello to everyone in the podcast uh in podcast land um so um I think, yeah. I, I hope uh, Jordan. Thanks for joining us, particularly as a driver on that line. I, I, I hope that was, you know, I, I, I hope this has been a a piece that's that we kind of looked at what we can learn and understand the issue and hasn't hasn't kind of. I, I've not tried. I, I didn't want this to be a sensationalized sort of look at all these pictures of crash trains. That's not what this is about. We, we, it's about us learning from what's happened and, and avoiding it ever happening again. I really hoped. Um, I'll tell you what. We'll, well, I'll talk about that momentarily. Um, what else? Yeah, Patreon, uh, Discord, and PayPal. Yeah, support me on Patreon. Do more of this. Uh, Discord. Have, I'm sure the conversation will continue on the, on the Discord server about this because there's a lot. There's been a lot of really interesting discussion going on. I'm conscious uh, happening in, um, uh, yeah, happening in the in the chat, which is really good. Lots of really good discussion. Please continue that in the Discord. Um, go into the safety space in the Discord. There is a safety dedicated channel. I'd, I'd like because I'd, I'd quite like to go back through the conversation. If you're going to take it on the Discord, go into safety space and have the discussion there. Because I think it'd be really interesting to kind of um, under kind of see some of the conversations that've been happening there. Um, yeah, uh, the next episode, the next episode is episode sixty. Uh, sixty of these, well, sixty-one technically. Uh, and the, the episode is going to be um, why bother with electrification? We're going to have a page turn through the latest um, rail industry uh, kind of association report. I think it's a really good report. Uh, Gary, David Shearer's. Um, Hoops, Paul Hooper from Atkins, uh, they were all inputting into it. Uh, oh, Noel, of course, as well, Noel Dolphin, the, 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 the big hitters, they've all inputted into it. I was actually in the early emails about creating this document, and I didn't get involved because I'm too busy. And I, To my eternal regret, because it's an awesome report, it would have been cool to have my name against it, but that's my own fault for being too busy. Um, that's next time. That should be an interesting one. Um, uh, Jordan, yeah, thanks Thanks for saying that. Yeah, it's you got a big face for a bit. It's got dark outside, and I've got bugs flying in because the window was open because it was quite hot. Um, 
Jordan, yeah, thanks thanks for saying that. Uh, I, I, for anyone, I don't know, there might well be other drivers and, and train staff, uh, kind of on-train staff in, in the chat. Uh, yeah, tough links to be absolutely valuable. Thanks, Jordan, for saying that. I I, I just wanted this to... I, it's, this is just a little podcast, right? I don't want to be pompous about... like, But, but I, I always try and learn from things. I try every episode first to kind of learn learn kind of things for the future and what, what the railway should look like. And, and I hope that it, it that this one, this is an incident basically when I, I never wanted to see another incident like this again in my lifetime when I joined when I joined the railway. Um, you know, Grey Rig was already kind of had happened quite a long time ago. Um, that's why I fight it. As soon as I came into it fairly quickly, I found myself looking at level boarding as an issue and understanding that as a source of fatalities and getting involved in that and changing and shaping that and doing a lot of platform work and projects so i've got involved in that i didn't expect to have to be dealing with fatalities from derailments so it was a big shock when sandy lands happened and then this again it just an absolute shock to the system really was a shock to the system um and it's a bit strange then doing interviews on the day and talking about it and 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 it was pretty you know it's, it's upsetting um so Hopefully that was. Hopefully it's been valuable. Hopefully it's been valuable. I, I I really um, I think there's 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 plenty for us to learn from this incident. There really is. Um, I I will. I look forward to seeing you all for next week's episode. Um, I uh, as I say, go into safety space on the Discord to have the conversation. Uh, to continue the conversation. I'm sorry this has been a longer one, but I think it's worth it. I know the numbers have trailed off. Hopefully people will pick it pick it back up again. Um, I will see you all. Uh, I will see you all next week. It's been a pleasure to have you along uh, for the ride. Uh, and I will, yeah, till next time. Cheerio, everyone. Cheerio.